Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 331 with my guest Rhonda Britton. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check it out. Uh, fill out a survey. Maybe we'll read your survey on the air. You can also browse the forum. Uh, you can buy stuff like T-shirts and coffee mugs. Actually, uh, we're looking for a new T-shirt vendor for right now, but you can buy coffee mugs. You can support the show um, with a one-time donation or recurring monthly donation, all kinds of stuff. So yeah, go check that out. MetalPod is also the uh, Twitter handle that you can follow me at. Uh, so uh, got back from the Europe trip uh, two days ago, and or was it three days ago? I don't know. I forget. Uh, but it went great. The people that I met up with were so friendly. It showed me around town. Uh, we recorded their stories. Uh, took me to great places to eat. I got to go up to Liverpool, do the Beatles tour. That was like a religious experience for me. It was so cool, and it was on a beautiful sunny day. I just managed to, to have the greatest stretch of sunny days. Um, in England, it was sunny almost every day. Hyde Park was in full bloom. It was, it was just, it was so good. And, um, like I said, Liverpool was, um, I dreamed about seeing Liverpool since I was a little kid. When I was six and seven years old, the first two albums that I got as gifts were from my cousin and he gave me, uh, Meet the Beatles and Revolver. And I played the shit out of those two albums and became a Beatles fan ever since then. So it, it, 
it was just, in my imagination, I'd always, you know, I'd, I've heard so many Beatles stories and, you know, reading about them, um, hearing people talk in interviews about them, and to see all of these places in person on a beautiful sunny spring day was uh, was just incredible. Um, I had a moment uh, in London. I, I love to uh, smoke the occasional cigar, and you can't get Cuban cigars in the United States, and Cuban cigars are, for the most part, the best cigars that you can get. So when I go outside uh, of the States, I usually try to buy a Cuban cigar or two, and I was in London trying to find a place to buy a cigar, and I found myself in kind of a hoity-toity section of London, and I thought, well, you know, I'm just getting one, so I'll go in there, and I'm sure it'll be more expensive than it would be someplace else. And so it's like this cigar lounge for, you know, London businessmen, and um, (laughs) I sat down. I just invited myself into this circle of guys that were sitting and talking and having cigars. They were super friendly. And one of the guys, well, let me preface this by saying one of the things that I love to do when I'm in a country is to have a stereotypical experience. And I sat down in this circle of guys and we're smoking cigars. And one of the guys, I'm not exaggerating, is wearing a three-piece suit, a derby, and a jeweled cane. (laughs) I was just like, yes. Yes, I went to an English tea room with uh, one of the guests that I recorded. Uh, really, really sweet kid. He came down from Manchester um, when when I was in Liverpool. And he's 19, blue collar, into heavy metal. And I said to him, you know, one of the things I want to do while I'm in England is I want to go to a fancy tea parlor and have tea. And he's like, what? And so he and I went into this place and we walk into this tea parlor and a lady is like listening to 20s music on a Victrola and doing some weird kind of 20s dance and we just both looked at each other and just started laughing and we went in there and we sat and had fancy English tea and just laughed the whole time because we felt so out of place but um his name is JT, and uh, his episode will be coming up uh, some point in the next couple of months. A really, really touching episode. Um, <laughs> if you are traveling to the EU, uh, here's a little something that you should know. If your passport is within three months of expiring, they won't let you in. I found that when I was trying to fly from England to uh, to Germany. Um, so I had to pay for an extra hotel, uh, an extra flight, and go to the embassy and get an emergency passport. And it, I was really pissed off and disappointed at first because that was time that I could have spent in Berlin recording more people. But when I went to the U.S. embassy um, and saw the line of people applying for visas to come work in the United States, um, I I just had this moment of gratitude that I get to live there. You know, put aside all of the problems I have with American politics and foreign policy and how we treat health care and all of that other stuff. Um, 
it, there is a tremendous amount of opportunity uh, where where I live here, and that kind of that really helped ease that feeling like, oh, I fucked up, you know, why didn't I, you know, why didn't I look into this more? I'm so stupid. Uh, Germany was really, really cool. Um, I went out to dinner with two guys who I uh, recorded. One is from Sweden and the other is an Aussie uh, who lives there. And we just had, I, I said to them, I want to go eat like the most stereotypical German food that you can eat. I want to have that experience. And we did. I had schnitzel. It was it was so cool. And they were super nice guys. Um, I wish I'd had more time in Berlin. Um, and then I went to Baden-Baden, uh, which is in the south of Germany. And I didn't have plans to record anybody there. And um, I had this moment. Baden-Baden is... It's like a uh, uh, this really old mineral spa that the the Romans used to go there, um, and there's supposed to be really healing uh, waters, and it was it was amazing. Well, for one for one year in Europe, and it's just people are so casual about their bodies there. So uh, I was there on a day when it's mixed and it's men and women just walking around naked in these mineral baths, and it i when i walked out of that spa i felt like i had had five massages it just it was so relaxing and then i went to uh this like i, I don't know if you would call it downtown baden baden because it's just this tiny little village that has been almost frozen like it's the late 1800s except that the hotels are have all modern conveniences and stuff like that but just cobblestone streets, um, friendly people. You're on the edge of the Black Forest, so you can see mountains and trees. And it's, it's once again, a beautiful spring day, and the sky is blue. And you can just smell that, that fresh air, and the church bells ringing, and kids are, you know, running from, from uh, coming out of school. And I'm sitting at this cafe, and I'm drinking coffee. And it was just, it was an amazing cup of coffee, and it's a beautiful day, and the birds are chirping. And this guy had rolled a piano out onto this cobblestone street and started playing the most beautiful, heartfelt piano I'd ever heard in my life. This guy must have been a concert pianist in his spare time. Uh, he was Russian. I forget what his name was, but he was playing song after song after song with a feel that I had never... It almost looked like his hands were underwater the way that they were moving. They were so fluid. And he played with such feeling and and um, uh, touch that I started crying. And I, I'm not, not one usually to cry listening to somebody play piano and I started to wonder what is it that's moving me so much in this moment and I realized I feel like the universe is hugging me right now. All of these components have come together and I'm having this amazing experience by myself and 
yeah, there might have also been some loneliness in there, but the, going through the divorce that I've been going through lately and feeling all of that pain and sadness and then having this moment where I just felt so alive and connected, um, it was it was beautiful. It was a little embarrassing because this one German guy was just kept looking at me like, why is that man crying? But um, I didn't really care because it felt so it felt so good. Um, I went to Amsterdam after that, and um, I got to record a woman that I wasn't able to record in Berlin. So she made the train ride there, and she grew up in East Germany and. We've actually read stuff from her before on the on the podcast. Um, she calls herself Anne from Berlin, and it was just a beautiful recording. And I can't wait to play that one for you guys. Um, I got to say, Amsterdam is a really cool city, but a little tough to be in at night if you don't drink and you don't get high. So I just really got high on pancakes. I just ate pancakes wherever I wherever I could. Um, and the hotel that I stayed in in Amsterdam was so funky looking. It, it, it looked like something out of like a children's book. It was just so, I don't like the word whimsical, but it was whimsical. There's no other way to describe it. It was such a cool looking uh, hotel. And uh, so that was my last place uh, where I was. And then, oh, and I got to see the Van Gogh Museum, which was really, really cool. Um, and then I took the plane home, and I was ready to go home at that point because it had been two weeks. And I was starting to get lonely. I hadn't been to any of my support group meetings. And um, I'm on the plane, and my wife texts me that Herbert's not feeling well. And um, she's like, do you think I should take him to the vet? And and she showed me a little video of him. And, you know, his breathing looked a little off, but it didn't seem too bad. And I said, you know, I think he can, because it was at, at uh, night there. It was morning in Amsterdam as I was flying. And, and then she texted me back about a half hour later and said, I think I'm going to take him to the vet. And she did. And then she texted me back about a half hour after that. And she said, they said it's pretty serious. And they think he has a 50-50 chance of surviving this because he has an enlarged heart. And he's been on meds for like four years for his heart. And um, they've, they've just always been adjusting them. And he's 12 years old. And um, and so I... Uh, I was just waiting for for news about how this was going to go. And then she uh, texted me again and said he didn't make it. And I still can't believe that it happened. I still can't wrap my head around the fact that I will never get to see Herbert again. And he had such a distinct personality. He was so unintentionally funny. I, I suppose there's no dog that is intentionally funny, but um, so I had 
12 more hours on this flight sobbing and trying to hide my face because I didn't I didn't want people to see me crying. And I suppose that's probably what most people would have done. But there was a part of me that really wanted to go ask somebody for a hug and just cry on their shoulder. But I couldn't. So I just hid my face like I was uh, really focused on my work. You know, I like had my, my hand on the, on the side of my face. And fortunately, most people's lights were kind of dimmed. Um, their shades were drawn. And I'm still crying about it. I still can't believe. I can still remember that feeling when she said he didn't make it. It, it, it hurts. It hurts so much. And one of the things that I'm grateful for is that we were able to give Herbert a really good life. We got him when he was about eight weeks old, and he had a really good life. And I'm also grateful that I haven't tried to numb myself out with anything, that when I felt like crying, I've sat down and I've cried, and I have wailed. And I feel like I'm getting through this like an adult. I'm not numbing myself with sugar or pornography, and... It hurts, and I know it's probably going to still hurt for a while, but I feel like um, like I'm handling it like an adult, like I'm, like I'm growing up, and I'm proud of myself to be able to be able to do that. And uh, my ex-wife and I, uh, even though we're legally still married, blah blah blah, uh, we've been leaning on each other. And that's been nice because nobody really can understand what it feels like to lose your dog except the other person that lived with you and that dog. And, you know, one minute we'll be crying and the next minute we'll be making a joke. One of the jokes that we make is our other dog, Ivy, is so self-centered and such a princess and... So we almost immediately started making jokes that Ivy uh, said that uh, Herbert's will stated that he never be mentioned again (laughs) and that she took it upon herself to put all his stuff on the porch. (laughs) And it was so nice to be able to laugh in in that moment. Um, But it is hard. It is hard. And... um, for those of you that are monthly donors through uh, Patreon, I put a little uh, video together of my favorite pictures of Herbert and some just kind of like a little biography of, uh, of his life. And um, um, I hope if, if that interests you, it helps you give, a, give you a little sense of who Herbert was. It feels so weird to talk about this like a dog but he was our little baby boy you know we don't have kids and we had a thousand different names for him um and it's just uh it's just it's weird it's weird and i know 
a lot of you have lost a pet and you know what it's like. There's no easy way around it. Just, uh, just through it. Um, so I'm going to read two, uh, two surveys, uh, before we go to the interview with Rhonda. Uh, this is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Teen Angsty. And uh, she writes, in high school, I had an extremely abusive relationship with a boyfriend. The stress I experienced from that relationship manifested itself in many ways, including me losing a dangerous amount of weight when I was 17. I looked sick, yet no one in my life noticed or bothered to question the sudden and drastic weight loss. My mother, who, whom I've had an extremely volatile relationship with, she has mental illness and she's never taken care of it properly. Uh, she was a speed freak and a current addict to prescription pills and has a horrible temper. Around this time, she was diagnosed with diabetes and began attempting to control her diet. One day, after she had stuck to her sugar-free diet for months, we were driving in the car on the way home from my boyfriend's house. She started laughing and said to me, These are your jeans. Isn't it funny? They're too big for me. Can you believe I wear a size smaller than you? Uh, before I read this other one, I want to also uh, mention uh, one of our sponsors who I've uh, raved many times about and uh, who I use, uh, BetterHelp.com. They are uh, an online counseling service that is great. Um, go to BetterHelp.com slash mental, uh, complete a questionnaire, and they'll match you up with a BetterHelp.com counselor you can experience a free week of online counseling to see if it works for you. Uh, you have to be over 18, and I highly, highly recommend them. Uh, everybody I know that has tried them has had a great experience with them. And this last uh, awfulsome moment was filled out by a guy who calls himself Welp, and he writes, I had just finished listening to the episode with Dr. Natalie Feinblatt a few days ago about codependent relationships. In it, she had mentioned that people who suffer from codependency still suffer from their codependent tendencies, even when not in a romantic relationship. This thought had been rattling around in my head. I knew I had a problem with the codependent relationships when I was in them, but I had not had a romantic relationship in years. So was it still that case? In what ways was my chronic people-pleasing affecting my life today? I got my answer when I sat down to watch Netflix on my tiny little tablet instead of on my large flat-screen TV because I was afraid the good sound system would bother the neighbors. I had never even met them, even as I could hear the sound of their TV coming through my walls. I'm so scared of being alive and so scared of dying. I was so, so lonely, but I couldn't bear being around people, and it hurt. I've just been, like, very interested in dicks. I don't know how to let loose and just be. All my altars have different handwriting, different... Extremely anxious. Affects. I am most turned on when I am in fear. My first thought was I'm about to die. Stomach-clutching despair. Ocean of sadness. I came out over the phone to them. I put myself on the Akinzaya in fourth grade. They told me I was wrong. The secrecy is what kills us. And I just sat there and cried on his shoulder. And it was the first time I ever felt safe, like a weight lifted off of me. In order to get rid of your anger, you have to learn how to cry. I started liking myself for the first time. I'm afraid that people are only nice to me because they're afraid I'll kill myself if they're not. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> 
I'm here with Rhonda Britton, who was recommended to me by a listener. She said, uh, you have to interview this woman. She has a really compelling story, and uh, she is just a resilient person who has walked through a lot of shit, and she knows how to tell her story. And uh, so... Uh, my my listeners are almost oh that sounds so possessive the <laughs> listeners my listeners um they're rarely wrong and because they, they they just have a sense of what uh what is good for the show so the pressure's on you Rhonda I I don't feel pressured at all cuz I <laughs> I am somebody who bears all and I believe that our journey is a spiritual one and I believe my job is to uh go to the depths and bring it back so I let other people know it's okay to go there, and if they're there, it's okay, mm-hmm. and they will get out, and or if they're too scared to go, I'll go for them. Nice. Nice. Yeah, it's like my yeah. job. What do they, what do they say? Uh, you, you don't truly know heaven until you've been through hell, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You can't, you can't really, I, I actually agree with that. Um, to a certain extent, because you don't know how good life is until life is really not good. I could, and I mean, couldn't agree really more. not good. Yeah. <laughs> and you have some really not good in your in your past. So let's um, let's start at the beginning. Start at, at your childhood, if that's an OK place to start. Absolutely. So I think the story that you're referring to is uh, the what I like to say, the worst day of my life, even though I've had many really bad day since, mm-hmm. which we can talk about all the different landmarks throughout my journey that I would call, you know, the, 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 what would you call them? The, the signposts, the, the signposts, the yeah. go down in the ditch. Yeah. You know, I call them my personal hell. That's what I call it. Yeah. I call it personal hell. Um, and this, we can hold off on that, that day for a while, unless you feel like that is the choice. Okay. I just got uh, with your story. I just think it'd be interesting to go chronologically and lead up to that. Yeah. Lead up to that. Day. So, you know, I grew up in upper Minnesota and upper Michigan. I grew up around oh. Lake Superior. Oh, hey there. There's you go. Hey, now a uh, 365 inches of snow a year. Wow. You know, I grew up in a, a little the U, tiny... Was it the UP? You got it. You bray. Oh, it's so beautiful up there. And it when, is I w- when I was driving here today, when I was driving here today... The car in front of me had Uper 2 on it. Really? And I literally was kept on trying to wave the driver like, a Uper, I'm a, I'm a Uper. But she like literally was like, and I'm like, no, no. And every every stoplight, I was like, hey, hey. I was like one of those like rabid fans, like trying to get her attention, yes. right? But yeah, I grew up, my parents grew up in the UP, the U, I'm a Uper. And then I was born in Minnesota, upper Minnesota. So um, between Duluth and Hancock, Michigan, went back and forth. And we basically lived in, you know, 800 square foot, 1100 square foot house, like all my other neighbors, one bathroom. And um, my mother was a bank teller and my father worked in computers. And I always say that if my father was just alive today, we would be multimillionaires. But no, he had to die um, because he was doing computers before there were computers. He was doing computers when there were a full room, right? Like, you know. Oh, wow. And, and the, Did he go back to the punch card days? Oh, punch card. I used to go to the punch cards, right? I used to go into his, you know, the big computer in the whole room, right? Oh, and yeah. I would be like, go in there and I'd do the punch. I still have punch <coughs> cards. I did. I learned on punch cards. Me too. Yeah. So my dad ran um, computer centers for in the 1960s. Wow. Yeah. So it was really cool. So, um, 
but um, growing up in the Upper Peninsula, you know, on one hand, you're you're safe and you're protected, right, from the elements of the evil cities, right, of the, you know, nothing bad happens in the UP, right, until it happens to you. And uh, that's, you know, what happened to me is something that never happened there before. And um, it, it almost is, un, you know, if I look back on my life and... Um, I think about that day. I know that that day was supposed to happen. But that day uh, to get through it, um, it took me 20 years to get through it. And that and I think that's I don't think I'm alone there. I think that when we have some trauma in our life, some traumatic event, uh, you know, everybody's so busy trying to uh, heal it fast, you know, and they say, you know, the experts say it takes 18 months to grieve, right? Um, my experience is, is that most of us don't grieve for 10, 5, 20 years until after a traumatic event. We, It's almost like I know that I didn't have the capacity to grieve for it. I mean, I, I thought I grieved. Don't get me wrong. I thought I did it. But I I, I don't think I had the 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 wherewithal the foundation the ability to actually feel all the feelings that were inside me. yeah it would have killed you to yeah. have felt them all at once and don't we really have to navigate all of the triggers multiple times to put it to <laughs> rest until Absolutely. you've navigated the the things that remind you of the thing you don't want to be reminded of um how could you possibly get to that get to that place and how could you possibly know it's never going to come up again? Maybe it'll be less intense. But let's go back to your to your childhood and uh, talk about. Um, give me some some moments, some vignettes, snapshots mm. of mm. of your childhood that you feel were emblematic of uh, not only the world around you and how you perceived it, but what was going on internally in yourself and your family. Mm. Uh, well, I think I lived in a world where there was two of me, right? And I think that I don't think I'm alone there. I think I, I mean, I was a straight A student, class president, you know, land my, uh, ran my church youth group. They didn't have one, so I made one. Um, okay. And when I was 14, uh, I was gonna like be a minister. I was like totally into God. And I, I'll never forget when I was 13. Uh, there, you know, again, grew up in Upper Michigan. In Upper Michigan, they had the revival, a revival come through, right? And we'd never, I'd never seen a revival come through, like a preacher coming on. And he came to the high school gym and he's like, come and be saved, right? And I, uh, loved God. I loved God. And so when he's like, come up and be saved, you know, come to the front of the room and be saved, I immediately jumped up and, you know, ran to the front because I was going to be saved, you know, because I just loved God. And uh, my mother did not, my mother and I went to this event, and my mother didn't come for a long time. And then all of a sudden, you know, she came finally, maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes later, because they're like, come on, come on, come on, you know. So I'm up there, you know, probably tearing a little bit, loving my God. My mother comes up and she puts her hand on my shoulder. Now, I remember I was 13 years old. And she puts her hand on my shoulder and she looks up at me, you know, she, she looks down at me like, I did it, I'm here. And I remember being so mad at her that it took her so long. I was so mad at her. And actually, one of my biggest regrets is that moment because I wasn't happy to see my mother. It was almost like I brushed her aside, like I was embarrassed, like, oh, I'm so embarrassed that it took you so long to get up here, right? Because I was such, you know, like sang in the choir and I ran the youth group and I was going to be a minister. And I just told my mother, I'm going to be a minister. I'm going to give my life to God. And I'm going to, and my mother would be like, oh, well, you know, because I, I used to, I sang all the time and my mother 
always thought I would marry a minister because I would sing in the choir, right? Uh, I would lead the choir, right? Because all ministers' wives lead choir, don't you know? <laughs> and so I remember her saying to me, oh, my goodness, you know, you, 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 you won't lead the choir. You're going you're gonna to be the minister. You're going to be able to keep your name, and you're going you know, to lead. And I'm like, yes, that's what I'm going to do, right? So do you, do you th- remember where you were? Okay. Um, do you think that what frustrated you about your mom in that moment that it took her so long to come up was that there was like a a deep-seated need for control in your life that you wanted to um mm. that it was scary to completely um let go like you had an idea of how the spirituality should i, I think arrive it was, i think it was more like i even though I knew my mother loved me, so I, I don't doubt my mother's love for me, but my mother didn't protect me. And it was almost like another thing, like, really? And and again, I don't remember having these thoughts when I was 13. I don't think I was sophisticated or knowledgeable enough to have right. these thoughts. But I, I think if I look back... I don't, I don't think any people, anybody who's... You know. Controlling unless they've been to therapy or support groups realizes that. They just think this is the right way to do it. Why can't everybody else get in line? And the only reason I'm bringing it up mm-hmm. is because when you said you were a straight-A student, that's usually the red flag for the... Yeah, for the, uh, yeah. That, yeah. I, I wasn't... I don't think I was controlling in that way because my sister was controlling in that way. My sister was a perfectionist and my father was a perfectionist. So my father would, before he drank a glass of water, he would look at the glass through, you know, up to the light to see if it was clean, right? That's my Mm -hmm. father and i don't remember this but my people have told me that when we were little my father would have us count the number of toilet sheets we would use the toilet paper sheets and we could only use like three toilet sheets because he was an accountant he was a accountant he was a computer guy so he would figure out how many pieces you had so i was so not controlling compared to the other people around me right and my sister cindy uh was a perfectionist like cleaned the house like you know, I would try to clean a dish and she'd be like, I have to redo it. And so basically my mother would try, God bless her, to get us to do chores or errands or, you know, something. Right. And um, but my sister, Cindy, nothing was good enough. So we me and my younger sister, Linda, were like, well, why bother? Right, right. now? It doesn't mean we weren't hard workers because we were, but it, we weren't. Um, we were always told on one hand, you know, I was the smart one in the family and I was the you know the spiritual one i was the quote-unquote pretty one in the family growing up but i wasn't definitely the favored one i definitely wasn't the favored one and why do you think that was because your sister my little sister linda the the youngest the, the, the youngest the youngest child the perfectionist the, the older the other Cindy, one. yeah cindy was a perfectionist the older one my little sister linda who's was born a year and a half after me so we're you know very close in age and my father, the world revolved around Linda. Why do you think that was? Well, I can tell you stories that people told me why it was. Um, you know, one person said my mother was going to leave my father and he raped her and Linda was a product of rape. And so he always saw Linda as a solution to his marital problems, like she saved the marriage. We could say that when I was born, I had a brother between between born between me and my older sister Cindy there was a, a a brother born but he died at birth and so when i was born i was a girl much to the chagrin of my very sports fanatical father 
And I think for me, he put all his, I think for me, he just put all his rage in me. Like he, if he was mad at somebody, it was me. If he hit somebody, it was me. If he, you know, whatever, it was me. Um, but on the other hand, he would tell me I'm Miss America. I was going to be Miss America, not because I was special, not, he wouldn't, he didn't, he didn't say I was going to be Miss America because I was special. He, he would look at the stats back then, Miss America contest. You know, you all sat around and watched it, right? And back in the day, they would have stats like, oh, she's blonde. Oh, she's from a small town. Oh, she sings. Oh, she, you know, and I would fit the stats. Oh, you're from a small town. Oh, you sing. You're blonde. You could be Miss America. So it was never personalized. It was never like you, Rhonda, Miss America. It was always like, well, you fit the stats so you could be Miss America. It, it sounds like your dad had OCD and it even extended to how we would <laughs> categorize people. You know? I, I actually think you're probably right, right? Um, and so my little sister, Linda, you know, because I was just a disappointment in his eyes because I wasn't a boy. When he had Linda, it was, it was like the sun and like, you know, all the thing, <laughs> you know. So when I was growing up, this is what I lived with. Like, we lived on the only street in, um, this is when we lived in Minnesota, on the only street, uh, the only street that, uh, the only block, I should say, on our street that was not paved, and it was rocks. Okay, so the only block on a, you know, two-mile street that was not paved. And so when we had across the street where our friends lived, you know, we'd run across the rocky street, right? My father would carry Linda. My, don't. What? Don't. Don't. You don't have to go over that scary stuff. And let daddy carry you. And he would literally carry her everywhere. How old was she? Oh, she was in, let's see, kindergarten, first grade, second grade. Yeah, and and it was so fascinating because to this day, if you really want to see somebody, how they grow. My sister, Linda, the youngest, who was always adored by my father, never knew, never felt unloved a day in her life, is married to a man for the last 30 years who adores her, loves her like, I mean, just like literally worships her like my father did. And I look at her and I go, wow, you, like you really, you got that down. Like you, yeah. <laughs> like you really, like your dad loved you and that's all you knew. So you attract a man who's crazy nuts for you, does everything for you. Dad did everything for you. Your husband does everything. I mean, she really just continues to live that life that she lived when she was second grade, first grade, fifth grade, right? It's a fa it's fascinating. But then it all ended and then she became Cinderella, right? It, it, oh, because it all, of, and, yeah, yeah, because the, the day, because, yeah, because yeah. of the day, right? So yeah. my when the day happened, everything changed. The rules changed. Let's, but let's let's still lead up to that because I want to. I I want as much information as possible before we get yeah, to sure. the day to have it in some t type of context. So it's yeah. it's not just sensational. I'm knowing that to be true. Yeah. Um. So give me some more some more vignettes. Um. So those were the things that were said about your sister, why she was so favored. Mm -hmm. um, my, my mother's best friend said it this way um, after my uh, after the day. Um, years later, we're talking to one of my mom's best friends. And we did not ask for this information. Thank you very much, Mrs. Slotness. Um, but she said, well, it was like your dad looked at Cindy and my older sister, and thought of her as the maid. And that's really what he thought of her, as somebody who cleans and you know, cooks and, and helps. she'll do it perfectly. She'll, yeah, and exactly. And she'll babysit, and she has to do everything, right? Um, and then Linda was like, oh, you know, the mm -hmm. adored one. And she says, um, Rhonda, when he would look at you, he would basically be disgusted. So so it, it, other like, people could see oh, it. Oh, other people could see it. It's like... Could you, could you sense oh, it? Oh, yeah, I never liked my dad. 
Like my dad and I, I don't want to say I never liked, well, I don't think, I don't know if I ever liked my dad, to be honest. Was there a time when you were trying to get his love and then a, and then like a moment or a particular stretch of time where you realized this is futile, I'm going to stop going to the well? I, I basically sacrificed myself. As I always thought of myself this way, that I'll sacrifice myself. There's no boy, and so I'll be the boy. So I'll pay football with him like I threw the ball with him we had a pool table in one of the houses so I played pool with him you know so even though I was the last person I think that he wanted to play pool with or throw a football with I was the only one capable of doing those things right so I would go in the back and play football with my like throw the ball with my dad right and I really I really felt it was my obligation would he criticize the way you threw the football or did, was he just like, okay, she's throwing the football, yeah, she, this I think is he, good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just I think he was like, this is good. And I'm a natural athlete, so mm-hmm. um, yeah, he wasn't necessarily critical. At least it was something, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I really just thought, I thought of it as my role. So I didn't feel, um, I just felt like it was my role, it was my job. That was part of being me. That My job was... To make sure my dad was okay on some level, you know, yeah. not make him mad, not upset him. And then, you know, um, I, I just remember, of course, I didn't, again, know it back then. But I think really what I did is I would come home from school. And again, I loved school. I loved church. I love, you know, and I would come home from school and I would take hours to get home from school it was one mile from the school to my house and we walk and it doesn't matter if you're walking in 20 feet of snow or it doesn't matter because you walk home you just walk it's 17 degrees below zero you walk right but i would get really bad stomach cramps and stomach pains and knee pains on the way home and i now think you know obviously psychosomatic i was creating something so i wouldn't have to go home but i would literally be sitting somewhere on somebody's steps for 15 20 minutes and then walk a little bit more and then have to stop wow and this went on for i think a couple years i think it was between the ages of like 12 and 14 like i just really dreaded going home and um, again, I didn't know it, right? But and I think my mom even took me to the doctors, probably, is because I was having so much stomach pain. But was was your dad's uh, anger or hatred towards you uh, the most extreme around that time? That the yes, because when I was twelve, um, so you re- you mentioned a minute ago about the reference to was there a moment, right? And I don't know if this was a moment. I don't think I. I don't I don't I think this was how I always felt but when I was 12 um well I'll go back for a minute when I was 10 my parents my mother came home one day and was crying and I was the only one home and I was like mom like what's going on and she was like crying and I'm and I was like uh you know like what do I do <laughs> like what do I do right like oh, my mom's crying I don't do and I just was like oh, what's going on you know and she finally says um I'm divorcing your father. And my birthday was up like the next month. It was like, this was happening in November. My birthday's in December. And I looked her straight in the eye and said, consider that my birthday present. Because you... Oh, I was so happy. Because I was like so free, right? Like I was like, oh my God, finally, finally, I'm going to get rid of 
this feeling. Now, again, if you would have met me, you would never, I don't think you would have known this because I was one of those kids like I did plays, you know, and I sang on the grass and I put on shows and I, you know, colored and I, you know, like I, I babysat, you know, I did stuff, right? But um, I'll never, I'll never forget that moment when I just looked at my mother and said, oh my God, they consider it my birthday present. And so my mother um, left my father because she caught him with another woman. Mm. And what I know now is my father, I think, had been has, had gone out on my mother their entire marriage. But again, she didn't catch him or know it. But she literally caught him red-handed. Mm. And it was her intuition. Her, we, my mother didn't drive. And my, our next-door neighbor across the street did. And she, my dad wasn't home. And she goes, um, will you drive me down to the, this thing, this string of bars. There's like three, four bars in a row up in Duluth, Minnesota, where we lived. And, you know, Mrs. Eckham's like, oh, I got to be home in time to make dinner. She's like, I know, but I just need to, there's, I, I got to find out. I got to find out. They just feel like there's something's going on. So they drive down and they can't find his car and they drive around these couple blocks, you know, over and over. And Mrs. Eckham's like, I got to get home. I got to make supper for her kids and her husband. And my mother's like, just please one more time, just please go around. So my my Mrs. Echo cuts through the alley to go back around to the front of the bars. And as they cut through the alley, my father was walking out of a house with his girlfriend under his arm. Wow. And so my mother, I mean, they were literally eyeball to eyeball to each other. Like the car was right there. Oh, and so like, he saw her. Oh, he see saw him. her. Oh, yeah. He saw her see him. And he, she said, oh, yes. So M- Mrs. Eckholm and Mrs. Slotness testified back in the day you had to testify to get a divorce so they testified against my father and my mother divorced my my divorce my mother divorced my father and so we moved to michigan bye dad bye oh yay right now uh, just back up a little bit i want to know what your relationship with your mom was like and how she viewed how you viewed your father i think i was my mother's I think, let's put it this way, I think my mother tried to make up for my father. Um, I think she really tried to make up for it. I think I think that's the best way to put it. And I think she basically taught me to buck up. You know, this is just the way it is. And uh, there was no, I mean, I always make the joke, like if I would have come into the house with a broken arm, my mother would have been like, Wash the dishes. And it's like, well, my arm's, my arm's broken, mom. Just wash the dishes, you know, cause, cause I grew up Finnish in a Finnish, uh, family. And if you watch the 60 minute special on Finland, on Finnish people, they don't feel a lot and they're very pragmatic and you don't, there's not a lot of hugging and kissing and mm. mm, not a lot of holding, not like, you, you know, no, none of that. So I, I don't think, I don't. I think my mother felt in a very bad. high suicide rate among Finnish people, or at least in Finland. Yes, and um, so I think my mother just basically felt like she had to make it up to me. Is really how I felt. And how did she make it up to you? Did she ever intervene when your dad was demeaning you or treating you badly? Because her telling yeah. you when you have a when you have a broken arm to do the dishes doesn't sound like your mom doing the opposite of your dad. Well, Let's- this this is what I make up the story I make up, right? Because she's not here to tell me. Um, but when I was so when I was twelve, so now my parents are divorced. Ten, I'm ten years old, divorced. We moved to Michigan, where my mother's from. My dad stays in Minnesota, where we're living. 
and my mother. So you were born in Minnesota, then went to the UP. Mm-hmm. Okay. And where my parents are from, the UP. I got you. Right. So my mother goes home. Right. Goes to UP. Back to her mom and dad. Right. And um, they're now getting divorced. Whew! Yay! Whoopee! Yay! Right. Um, uh, but my dad follows my mother to the UP because my dad is not going to accept this divorce. My dad is not going to do it. Mm-mm, no way. He's not going to be divorced. So he basically courts my mother like nobody's business. And he basically just starts moving in and starts just hanging out at my house. And my mother was, I think, too afraid to do anything about it. She didn't know how to keep him out of the house. And so when I was 12, um, I was walking up the stairs from our basement and my father was walking. I was walking up the stairs from our basement and my father was walking down the stairs from our basement. So he was coming from the kitchen into, our, into, into, yeah, into basement. our basement. Thank you. I knew I was saying that incorrectly. Mm-hmm. So my father was walking from the kitchen down the basement and I was walking from the basement up to the kitchen. And, you know, I was 12 years old. Right. And he said something. I don't know what he said. And I was like, whatever. You know, I, I kind of mm-hmm. said, like, whatever, you know. And my father looked at me like he was going to kill me. And I said the word whatever. And it was literally like whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And I ran as fast as I could, got on my bed, on my back, put my hands and my legs up to protect myself. So when I think to myself, like... Had he been physically abusive before then? Well, see, this is the thing. I don't remember it. But my relatives tell me it happened. Okay. Like my uncle told me that I I was like he came over one day t- to right. to take me to the doctors, take me to the hospital, right? But I don't remember those things. But I do remember this moment. And I think to myself, how did I know how to do that then? Like how did I know that I better run? And how did I know to get on my back? And how did I know to put my arms up and just start screaming, right? And so as I'm running through the house to get to my bedroom to get, you know, hopefully he won't come in, but he does. He jumps right on top of me and he starts strangling me. And my little sister, Linda, who he adores, we share a room and she's on her twin bed going, daddy, don't kill Rhonda. 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 And he's just strangling me, strangling me, strangling me. And I absolutely believe to this day that she is the what kept me alive because if she hadn't been saying daddy don't kill Rhonda I absolutely don't think he I don't think he had the self-control to stop himself right so so that happened but but there was nothing that happened afterwards right like my mother didn't take me out of the house my mother didn't kick my dad out and your mother knew what happened oh she knew that he tried to strangle yeah I mean there was and then nothing happened so you know after after the day you know, it, one of the things that I had to do to actually get through it to heal myself is is I had to take my mother off this golden pedestal that I had her on, right? Because I think we want to make the victims, right? We want to make them victims. We want to make them innocent. We want to make them like, oh, oh, you know, oh, it's not, no, it's not their fault. And no, it's not my mother's fault. Yet I had to take her off the pedestal and go. She stayed with him for twenty years. She didn't take me out of the house. She didn't t- kick him out of the house, right? She didn't call the police she, she didn't call the police right um a little while later um he threatened her and we called the police and the police came and of course she's like no i'm fine because back then you know it's like oh no officer i'm fine no and me and my to this day to, to it's this, like i know it's it's, like it's so sad it's so sad like my mother like my dad literally takes all the knives all the kitchen knives out of the cupboard and 
goes up to my mother and has her by the throat and has all the knives on her and I am trying to separate them and Linda is little and she's really tiny. She's still tiny to this day. She's little, just really petite. And so my father had me so that I wouldn't run out and get help. And I just kept on yelling for Linda and Linda literally got by my dad and I just said, run, Linda, run, run, you know. And so she got to the neighbor's house, called the police. Now, I can't imagine my father how much betrayal that was for my sister to call the police on him. Mm-hmm. But um, but yes, my, the police came. And of course, my mother's like, no, he's fine. Well, ma'am, we could take him out of the house for the night. No, he's fine. You know. Um, so, you know, my mother, between, you know, 12 and 14, when all this happened, when she took him back and, you know, my grandfather, her her father was like, there's no divorce in our family. You have to take him back. I mean, it was just unacceptable. It was unacceptable. And, um, you know, he's come here. He's trying to make amends. You have to take him back. And um, I think my mother, as she's taking him back, is realizing this is a really bad idea. Like this, I, I should let him, this is not good. So she starts divorce proceedings again. And you're how old at this point? 14. Was your father religious? Um, my father went to church with us, but I would say no. Okay. But, you know, he went to church with us at, I shouldn't say always, but when we were little, he would. And like, we had a strict rule in our house. If you were sick, to, too sick to go to church, you were too sick to go and play. So there was no skipping church. Now my father could skip church, but we couldn't skip church. Yeah. That was the same in my family. Yeah. 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 Uh, I'm trying to understand what it was that was pressuring your mom to take him back to, um, and now I understand in the cycle of domestic violence, mm-hmm. the the abuser has such a hold yes. on the other person that, you know, they slowly brainwash them. They whittle no away. No one will love their, you like I strength. do. It, exactly. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't have compassion for the person that doesn't leave. I didn't either until I became educated and I'm still becoming educated on how a lot of courage. mentally and emotionally difficult it is yes. for them to break that cycle. That's right. That being said, I'm trying to understand what whether any of your mom's um, decisions were based on how she would be viewed by the greater society, the neighbors, etc. How how important was looking good to them? Was was any of this moral? You know, was any of it oh, based? Oh God, in- yeah. I mean, I th- she took him back because, like I said, her father said you can't get divorced. Okay, and. Um, you know, even though they got divorced, you know, they basically what what ended up happening because I went years later to look for the divorce decree and the marriage decrees and all that. And basically they had the divorce annulled. So the divorce was annulled. So they didn't get remarried. They just had the divorce kind of reversed. I see. Right. And um, which was fascinating. Um, but, you know, she's home now. Her parents live down the street. Uh, all of our relatives are there and you don't get divorced. And he makes a good living. And, you know, I mean, we're middle class, but, you know, he works as a job, you know, he wears a tie every day, goes in his computer store. I mean, like, you know, he's got a little bit of college, a semester or two of college. Um, you know, what do you th- what are you thinking? You know, what, what are you doing? So I think it was just um, practical. More practical. It was it's practical. And I think it was also he's the father of your children. You know that, you know, the whole and, like. And I would imagine don't be different. 
don't stick out. You know, well, don't. well, back then, and again, still today at times, um, if you're a divorcee, you didn't have any friends either. So my mother being divorced, none of my relatives, the wives of my uncles or my aunts would hang out with my mother because she was single, which meant all the other men's wives could get ideas to get divorced. So all my mother's friends that were married couldn't hang with her anymore. So she basically became... Because their husbands forbade them? Yes, yes, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And what what, what years are we talking about? Is it 60s, Uh, 70s? We're talking, um, this was in like 72, right? And so, you know, divorcees were singles you know, loose women, right? And you can't do that because then she's going to influence you. So my mother, you know, she worked at a bank and, you know, she was very friendly and she was very good at her job and people loved her. I mean, to this day, people, if I see people that knew my mother, they'll be like, your mother was so beautiful and my your mother was the light. Your mother had so much light. Like they just like love my mother. So, and I do think my mother had light and I do think my mother was funny and I do think my mother was had this effervescence around her. Um, and I really think my father wanted to control that, wanted to own that, wanted to have that. Because right? he couldn't get it he, on he, his own. He, could, he couldn't do it his own. I mean, my father could be charming in those weird moments, but he was pretty much socially awkward. He, grew up, he almost he, sounds like he was on some type of spectrum. You know what I mean? Maybe. Like, like just from your description. Yeah, I, I, I would have no doubt that that's probably yeah. true. Yeah. I mean, my whole my whole father's side is, um, you know, my, my uncle, my, my dad's brother, uh, describes him as my father when he was little, would play the whole baseball game by himself. He would, th- you know, th- throw the pitch, grab the bat, hit it, go to the bases, and he would play the announcer for the whole entire game all by himself, even wow. though he had like five, five brothers and sisters, right? Wow. So, I mean, he was a, you know, he was a sports fanatic and here he is a computer guy. But, um, I, I think my dad, my dad, uh, you know, my great grandfather, my grandfather was an alcoholic. I mean, he was just, his upbringing was not the healthiest, right? <laughs> Let's just put it that way. I mean, my grandma, my, my dad's mom and my dad's sister, Barbara, so their daughter, my grandma and my aunt Barb, um, slept in the same bed because the boys, there was only three bedrooms and there was like six kids. So the girls stayed one bedroom and the boys and the dad spent the, said were in the other two bedrooms, you know, and, and my grandpa accidentally didn't mean to drove over my uncle, my other uncle when he was little. So, I mean, it was just, you know, so now my uncle, you know, is really, really smart, but he doesn't have social skills. He's not capable, awkward, you know? Um, so, I mean, just my dad's upbringing was, so your uncle was kind of similar to your dad a little bit. Okay. Yeah. I mean, my entire dad's, my dad's, my dad's, my mother would always say to me, oh, your dad's a genius. Because my dad was very, very, very smart. He probably had an IQ of like 155 or 160. He was really, really smart. And so he would... So, But now when I look back on it, and I was always told you're just like your dad because you, I, was, I was the smartest one of the girls, right? But I remember when um, after that day that I was... That haunted me, like haunted me that I was told I was like my dad. That just... Like it haunted me because I thought what am I capable of? And what does that mean? And oh my God, right? Like I, I was, I was actually scared of myself for 
a good 10, 15 years. I was literally scared of what I was capable of. I was scared of my anger. I was scared of my rage. I was scared of how I felt. I was scared of feelings because I didn't know what I would do with them because I didn't have any healthy role models on what to do. So I didn't know what I would do. So I just, you know, sucked them in. And if you would have met me, again, just, I'm fine, you know? <laughs> I'm fine and dandy. I'm good to go, you know? And that you would have thought that. And Rhonda, Rhonda's putting on a very big suburban smile right now. <laughs> that's, that's, the listeners can't see it. But yeah, she's doing the I'm smiling, fine. smiling I'm through fine. pain. Yeah, I'm fine. No, yeah. a Stepford wife, right? Yeah. Like a Stepford, hi, no, I'm fine. I'm good. No, I'm good. No, everything's good. I'm fine. Good. You know, and that's how I really lived most of my life until until it was too painful to keep doing that. Until I realized I had to do something else, right? So I think my I think my mom um kind of was a good daughter, did what she thought she had to. I think my dad was absolutely a control freak. And, um, and by the way, when I said he sounds like he was on the spectrum, I don't mean his his rage and his violence. I just uh -huh. meant how he found comfort in numbers and yes. was kind of yes. uh, difficult, uh, had difficulty yes. absorbing social cues. Yes, yes, okay. yes, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so I think my dad was just, you know, kind of smart, but socially awkward. And I think my mom was this light that, you know, everybody should make everybody laugh. And, you know, she'd you know, just be lighthearted. And, you know, I, I don't think I know a person that doesn't love my mother, if you say her name. And everybody would be like, your dad, well, that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're a little kid, right, when you grow up with that, you don't know. And I remember I would get, you know, I get hurt or mad or whatever I would do as a little kid, you know, second grade, fourth grade, and I would take my blanket and my pillow and a book and like a glass and I would go into the bathroom and we only had one bathroom of course and I would be like I can live in here forever <laughs> because I've got the water and I brought some cookies here and I got my blanket and my pillow and I'm going to sit here and until they until they beg me to get out and this is what I remember Paul no one ever ever came like ever like nobody ever knocked on the door and every time I would do that I would have to crawl out like pretend like I never did that, but I would be in the bathroom just waiting. They're going to need the toilet sometime. I'm just, I'm oh. going to run away in my bathroom. Oh. oh, that's so painful. That's so painful. So any other uh, snapshots leading up to, uh, to the day? Um, you know, I think that, you know, it, it's really interesting because, um, if you would have met me when I was 22, 25, and you asked me about my childhood, I would actually tell you I had the best childhood ever because we lived in, you know, neighborhoods with 50 kids, 30 kids, and we'd play kickball every night. And so when I was in like 18, 20, 22 years old, 23 years old, and people would be like, you know, how'd you grow up? I'd be like, oh my God, I had the best childhood ever. And I'll never forget when one of my friends, when I, um, when I was in my mid twenties or late, late, you know, mid to late twenties, and he said, "Oh well, wow, you've you've been abused." And I literally looked at him like he was a crazy person because I actually never saw myself that way. 
I only saw myself as somebody who was a straight A student and I'm fine and I'm fine and everything's fine. And um, it didn't even occur to me that there was a problem. I actually thought this was normal and I actually had 50 kids in my neighborhood. So I was good. You know, it's interesting. The the tests that we use, because I would have said the same thing uh, in, in my mid-20s because college was paid for, always had a roof over my head. We went on vacations. There was no yelling. Um, you know, it, it, and, and I did have fun because we had a shitload of kids mm-hmm. on our block. Mm-hmm. But when people assess it, they rarely go to the place of, did I feel like I was emotionally uh, supported and educated by my parents? Was there stability? Did I feel uh, safe? Uh, were there boundaries? And those, to me, are the things that <laughs> like, you that yeah, you should like, judge it what? by. Right, but right, right. not having them, yeah. how do you know you didn't have something that you didn't know should be there? That's right. Well, my fr- one of my friends, Tammy, who was my one of my best friends when I was growing up, um, I saw her recently, just wherever it was, and she said to me, she was telling. It's funny when people tell you stories about what they remember, right? And she told me how um, she would come over and sleep at my house, right? We'd have a girl sleepover. And she said, um, we were both afraid of your dad. Like, you would be like, I'm afraid of my dad. And and, and Tam, my friend Tammy would be like, oh, I'm afraid to be at your house. I mean, it's like I had these girlfriends. You said, I'm afraid of my dad. Like, yeah, I'm afraid yeah. of my dad. I don't know what my dad's going to do. I hope my dad's happy. I hope my dad's... So I don't remember that, but Tammy reminded me of it. And I've had friends tell me, oh, yeah, even though my 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 mother, everyone loved coming over to our house because she was the fun mom um, to do sleepovers and things like that. It's like, uh, you have to deal with your dad? Uh, no, I don't think so. So like people, Tammy said to me, I was afraid of your dad. Mm. Like she didn't want to come over. She, she was in my house like, ah, should I be scared? What should I be doing? Because I would be like, oh, my dad, he's so, I mean, and I would say things, I guess, but I, I don't, again, I don't remember that at all. But I've had several people tell me that. It's like, oh, I guess I was. I, I guess I did verbalize it kind of probably casually, right? Ha- you know, like, well, I don't know. Well, I'm just kind of afraid of my dad. You know, like, no big deal. I hope you're not afraid. You're in my house tonight, locked in. I hope you're okay. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, right? We're trying yeah. to just make do, right? We're people, just trying to make do. People used to say to me, why is your dad mad at me? And I said, that's just his face. Oh, wow. That's just his well, face. You did, that, but, you did that when you were little? You knew that when you were little? Oh, yeah. I remember wow. at age six feeling like I understood people better than my dad did. My wow. dad just didn't. He, he, was a, he wasn't violent at all. Mm-hmm. I don't even ever remember him raising his voice. He would just retreat into himself. But he was mm-hmm. an actuary, brilliant uh, mind, yeah, yeah. socially awkward. Just like my dad. Lost in his thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, but he would surrender control instead of trying to take it. Mm-hmm. His control was to was to just pull away. Mm-hmm. But yeah. go ahead. Yeah, no, no. I mean, my dad, we would have TV dinners, right? My, But I, like we would try to have Sunday together. But I don't really remember eating family meals except Thanksgiving and Christmas. You know, I don't really... I mean, I know we did. We must have sometime, but I don't really remember that. I think, you know, people have asked me, well, your dad was an alcoholic. And I go, I've I, I asked, I've asked my relatives that so many times. Was my dad an alcoholic? And half say they never saw him have a drink. And we never had alcohol in the house. Like, I never have seen my parents drink. 
But then he was at the bar after work, right? So I think my father basically drank after work with his buddies and then would come home, right? Because, again, I didn't – I mean, when I was older, like 12, 13, 14, he had a beer maybe on the porch. But I don't – I mean, I think I've maybe seen my mother maybe have a drink once at a wedding, but I don't even remember that if she did that. So so I don't, I don't know if my dad was an alcoholic. Um, I don't know. I just know alcoholism runs in our family, so yeah. I'm one. I raise my hand. Sober? Yep, 30, 30 years coming up. Wow. 13 over here. Wow. Yeah. Changed my life. One of my big moments. Me too. Quit Me dr- too. Quitting drinking was the, is the only reason I'm standing here. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Couldn't agree more that none of this would be possible. No. Without that being the first step. No, it's a yeah. major big step. Without, yeah. without me quitting drinking, I could have never, I, yeah, I would not be here. Yeah. So are you ready then to go to the day? Sure, sure. I mean, it's um you know, it it it's so fascinating cuz like I said earlier, you know, I I I I think we well, I'll just talk for myself. I think in order for me to to cope with it, in order to deal with it, in order to be okay with it on some level. You know, I, I think of myself with me and my mom and my dad up in heaven before we, you know, reincarnated. And I think of my dad up there going, oh, let's think about our next lives. And of course, we're not dad, moms and daughters, right? We're just three angels up there. My dad's like, oh, let's think, let's come up with something really, really good. And, and, and my dad's like thinking and my mom's thinking and my dad's like, oh, wait, 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 I got it. Right. And then he proceeds to tell me the plan. And I think it's a fantastic idea because we're in heaven, right? And we don't, right? And um, he's like, oh, and and after this happens, then you are, Rhonda, you're going to help people master emotional fear for the rest of your life. You're going to be like this person who helps all these people become fearless. And I'm like, I'm like, wow. And I'm like, Angel, and I'm going, wow, that's a pretty good job. I, I'll do that. And he goes, yeah, but this, this thing has to happen for us. I'm like, yeah, 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 that's okay. That's okay. You know, yeah. And my mom's like, okay, then I'll be the mom. And, you know, oh, and then this will happen. And I'm like, oh, we're like, okay, okay. So, like, we all agreed, right? We so, all, this is what you have in your head yes, to, yes. to be able to move forward yes, with yes. it. Yeah. One of the things that I use, it's like, it's like, okay, so we made this pact, right? And then the day came, right? And then. Of course, you don't remember the pact, right? So I was 14 years old, and it was Father's Day. And if you remember, I my father had my mother had now been filed for a second divorce from my father. Okay. So my father divorced, divorce annulled, divorce again, divorcing again, right? Okay. So now he is at our house sometimes, not at our house sometimes, whatever. Three months before this this the day happened, um, my father. Is working at the computer, uh, computer thing, computer building, uh, computer company, and um, on a Friday they reach their goal. They always wanted to make like ten thousand dollars in a day. Okay, that was their goal back then, nineteen seventy-five. And uh, on one Friday, I think it was in March, they made the goal, and they had champagne, and it was a big celebration. And my father never showed up for work again, and we never saw him again. My father. What we know now is he cashed his life insurance and he left and traveled all over the country, which I'll share a little bit more later. Um, so now my sister, it's the beginning of, beginning of June, my sister Cindy, older sister, sees him driving around town. And she's like, Dad's back in town. Okay. My mother, this is not good news for my mother. Um, 
but we're like, well, it's Father's Day next week. Like we have to invite him to Father's Day. So it's Father's Day. So I haven't seen my father for many months at this point. And um, um, so he comes over and um, my mother's like, be nice, right? Like everybody be nice. And it's like, of course. And my mother had, back then, my mother sold all my clothes for me. So I had, my mother made me this white cotton dress with uh, a scarf on it. It's white with black polka dots on it. And if you remember 1975, it was up to my behind, right? It was like up to my butt. And uh, I couldn't wait to like flirt with all the boys in the restaurant because we never, we were definitely a middle class family. Like going out to brunch or eat was a lot of money. We'd get pizza maybe once in a while. But going out to Sunday brunch at Father's Day was a big Big deal. Yeah. We didn't have any fast food in our town. We just had like a couple restaurants. And so we were going to go to the fancy Douglas House Buffet, which is, again, big deal. And uh, so I got all my pretty dress on. My sister's getting dressed. My mom's getting dressed. My mom, I'm in my, my mother's room with her, helping her get ready. And she's putting on her blue eyeshadow. And she's putting on her lipstick, her rose-colored lipstick. And then she's got this beehive hairdo. Do you remember the beehive? I do. So... um so I'm helping my mom. If for the people that don't know, my mother used to go to beautician every Friday and uh, would get her hair wash combed and curled and put in the shape of a beehive. And in between her Friday and Friday appointments, my mother would to- take a roll of toilet paper and wrap her head. So my father slept next to a roll of paper, roll of paper, toilet paper yeah. for 20 years, right? So my mom... I'm helping my mom take down her toilet paper, right, and fluff up her hair. And my dad comes in, come on, come on. And so my mom's like trying to hurry us, and my sisters are still in the bathroom. And so I start walking out with my dad, and um, he says he's going to get his coat from the car. So he's walking out, getting his coat. He's in the trunk of his car, and me and my mom are are walking towards the car. It's starting to rain a little bit, so my sisters are still in in the house, not coming out. And out of the corner of my eye, I see my dad has not grabbed uh, a coat, but he's grabbed a gun. And he cocks it and pulls it out and starts screaming at my mother, you made me do this, you made me do this, and he fires. And I just start screaming, dad, what are you doing? (laughs) Dad, what are you doing? Right? Like, I'm just like, what are you, what are you doing? And my father cocks the gun again and points it at me. And I absolutely believe I'm next. There's not one ounce of my being that doesn't know I'm about to die. He tried to strangle me when I was 12. Gun in his hand right now, pointed at me, definitely dead. And my father just literally stared at me and I stared at him. Like we just literally locked eyes And my mother, she'd already had one bullet. My one bullet already entered my mother, um, looked up and saw the gun in my face and screamed, no, don't. And my father, realizing my mother's still alive, turned that gun and shot her a second time with that bullet. And that bullet went through my mother's abdomen and out her back and landed in the car horn. And for the next 20 minutes, all I heard was, eh, like the horn, oh just like, eh. I mean, I couldn't hear a horn for probably 25 years without completely like, uh, you know, like I was back there in a second. And um, my father cocked the gun again, uh, got down on his knees and put the gun to his head and fired. 
So I was the sole witness to my father murdering my mother and killing himself, you know, committing suicide within about two minutes. And I don't know how anybody else would respond, but what I did is I absolutely blamed myself because I was the only one out there. I was the only one that physically could have done something. I didn't grab the gun. I didn't jump in front of my mom. I didn't kick my father. I, you know, I didn't push the gun away. I didn't grab the gun. I didn't say anything but stop, dad, stop. And when he put the gun in my face, I was frozen. And I remember running when that, you know, when everything gets quiet, I ran into my mother's room and I got on my knees and I said, please, God, please, God, please, God, please, God. You know, I, I did, I, I said I was going to be, you know, I was going to be a minister. I devote my life to you. I devote my life to you. Um, but you got to keep my mom alive because if she dies, I can't, I don't promise anything. I don't promise anything because the thought that went through my head also when this was happening after it happened was God, God does not give you, a, you know, anything that you cannot, you know, live through, right? You cannot, you know, you can persevere through, right? Uh, and I remember thinking to myself, God, your jobs are too big. You you have too many tests. This is, you, you, is this a test? You overestimate us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You overestimate us big time. And I don't think you, like, you're crazy. I'm 14 years old. My sister's 13. My sister's 17. Are you crazy? Like, I, and, and I literally just was on my knees just praying and I just told God, if you keep her alive, I will keep my promise to you. And if you don't, I won't. And so within, you know, within a very short period of time, we knew both of them were dead. My mother died on arrival. My father actually was alive for a little tiny bit. Um, uh, and then, I mean, so they obviously died. My mother, again, like I said, my, my mother bled out, so she died instantly. Um, and so in that moment, what I did is... I basically put a line in between me and God. I never hated God for it. I never got mad, actually, at even God for it. I just couldn't trust him. So I put a line in between me and God, and I said, I can't, I can't trust you. You know, what, 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 I'm gonna, what are you, nuts? So I put him on the other side and just basically just, cut him off and like i said didn't hate him wasn't mad at him but i couldn't i couldn't trust him i couldn't trust him with my life anymore so um that was when i was 14 and from that moment on i even more so even the life i was living even more so i was living a double life now um i mean nobody has a daughter of a murder suicide. I mean, now I was a daughter of a murderer and I was told my whole life I was just like my father, right? So now I have this incredible feeling of like, I am screwed. Like I am screwed. How often in the days, weeks, months, do you just keep flashing back to that moment? Now to this, in this no, moment, no, back, that, give me the, the first oh, week, the first month, oh God. the first year. Oh, I can't even imagine. I, it was probably all the time. I can't even imagine that it wasn't all the time. Was it impossible to focus on anything? Um, no, I think what I did is I compartmentalized, right? I got really good. You know, before I was already good at splitting myself in two and now I became the queen at it. So, I mean, I still got straight A's in school. You know, I still, I was, I became class president. I became the leader, you know, of the school plays. I mean, it's a little school, right? A hundred people in my class. Um, but, you know, kids also weren't, 
allowed to play with me. <laughs> you know, some kids weren't allowed to hang out with me anymore. They weren't allowed because now. What did that feel like? Um, again, it was like another way that my father effed me over, right? You can say fuck here. Yeah. So <laughs> the other, another way my father fucked me over, right? Like, okay, so not only do you take my mother, who loved me, um, but now uh, I'm, I'm, now I'm scared. I'm, I'm scarred. Like I'm screwed. Like I'm just screwed. Right. It's like he couldn't have hurt you anymore. You know? Yeah. I mean, and he didn't take me because it was, it was like what I, what I used to say to myself is, you know, I wasn't worth dying for and I wasn't worth staying alive for. So, you know, if he would have been, you know, if he would have loved me, he would have killed me too. You know, um, you know, if he would have, it's almost like it's almost like keeping me alive was a fuck you. Did you get clarity on this when you got sober and did the work in your support group? Because it really sounds like you like you did. You you have such clarity looking back on what your self beliefs were. Um, how did you? Or are we jumping too far ahead? But I'm just I want to share with the listener yeah. how. How did I do it? <laughs> that we can get clarity no, over what feels totally. so fucked and trapped no, right a- now. Absolutely. Uh, you know, um, you know, I was a self-help junkie since I was 12. You know, like my favorite book when I was 12 was Why Am I Afraid to Tell You Who I Am? You know, so and I and I would like, you know, devour books on God. Right. So. I think God, that, are you there? It's me, Margaret. I didn't read that one. <laughs> the one cliche. Uh, yeah, the one, I can think the of. one thing I didn't read. Darn yeah. it all. Um, but you know, I'd like read the Bible, and I'd mm-hmm. read all these other books on God. You know, um, um, so I, I think what happened for me is between fourteen and twenty-five, my life got really, really, really bad. Um. From 14 to 17, I like kind of kept it together because I was in like high school. But when I was 17, I went to college in Minneapolis where no one knew me. And by the way, who raised you uh, after The that? three of us stayed together. So your older sister kind of became the mom? Kind of became the mom. And that lasted until we were for like two years. And then if, I don't know how we did this, but my sister, my little sister, Linda, was like living on her own by the time she was 16. And I was living on my own by the time I was like 16 and a half, 17 years old. Like uh, we only lived together for two years after that. Mm. Um, we stayed in that house for, but this is, I'll just give you an example of my relatives. Okay. So my uncle Evald, my dad, my mother's younger brother, who she was closest to, just this is a couple years ago now. Um, and mind you, I have never cut off my family. Like after my parents died, my mother would send out a hundred Christmas cards. I kept that tradition up for almost 15, 20 years. And uh, so I would write all her friends, tell her all what we're doing. Just keep it up. Keep it up. Keep it up. Um, Pretend like we're fine. No, I'm fine. Everything's fine. I'm fine. Right. Um, um, But uh, I assume that you that you didn't include one of the newsletters of what happened this last year. You didn't. You didn't need to include that. <laughs> well, back then they didn't really have that. You had yeah. to have mimeographs, right? There was yeah. no Xerox, yeah. right? So how do you but, spin so, that one? Yeah, no, right, yeah. exactly. So between, but so, 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 just a my sister Cindy, my older sister, um, got pregnant when she was sixteen. Um, had a baby, so she was actually married by the time my mother died. 
So now I just want you to imagine I'm 14. I'm a straight A student. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I, I'm a virgin. You know, I'm like perfect in my mind. And my sister Cindy, who's three and a half, four years older, is pregnant, drank, you know, didn't, you know, had, had to drop out of high school, had to finish with a GD, whatever. And so when my sister Cindy would like tell me what to do, I would look at her and go, really? Uh-huh. Let's think about this. I would. I, I was I was almost cruel, right? Like, um, I can say it publicly because I've apologized. We've had these yeah. conversations. But, you know, I would literally look. She tried to tell me to do anything. I would literally be like, hmm, let's see. You got pregnant. You drink. You smoke. Hmm. i not pregnant. Virgin. Don't drink. Don't smoke. I think I'll take my own advice. So one of the things for me is, one of the things that kept me trapped for so long is, I actually didn't have anyone that I trusted that I could talk to. Um, you know, they did put me in therapy right away. Like a, like some family paid for my therapy after that happened. Cause and I, did it help? Um, I think it helped to the fact that, I mean, I don't remember how suicidal it was, but my sister Cindy says I was really suicidal. So they sent me to this therapist. But the problem is the therapist that they sent me to, her his wife was the therapist in our school. Like, you know what I mean? It was so, yeah. in, like, it's such a little town that everybody knew everybody. Yeah. But I do have still to this day um, what he made me write. So he's one day in therapy. He's like, so tell me good things about you. And I'd be like, oh, there's nothing good about me. He's like, well, what's what's one good thing about you? I was like, mm, I try to be nice to people. You know, so he actually, I ha actually have, um, he actually wrote it and I was talking and I actually have the letter that he wrote of all the things of all the things that I said I was okay at. And it, but it was, everything was like, I try to be nice. I, I'm an okay basketball player, you know, <laughs> like, like it was so like, wah, 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 right. And then, and then I didn't have therapy again until I was 24, uh, 25. Actually, I tried to go in college when life got really bad. Cause when, when I went to Minneapolis and nobody knew me and nobody knew my story, um, it was like, Oh, I can, I can, I can, I, I can lie. I can tell. I don't Nobody has to know me. So I would never tell anybody what happened to my parents. And so they'd be like, oh, your parents? i go, oh, they're both passed. And they'd be like, and of course, everyone's like, both? And I'd be like, yes. And they'd be like, accident? I'd be like, yes. And I, in my mind, I'd go, accidentally shot my mother and killed himself, you know? That's <laughs> <laughs> so right? fucked up. I know, but I couldn't admit it's, it. Right? I, I couldn't, don't blame like, you yeah. at all. I mean, it's like, what, are you crazy? Like, what, the cuckoo girl? Like, what? I mean, I'd be screwed right there. And then I didn't drink all in high school. But when I went to college, I started drinking. Well, now imagine somebody who doesn't let her feelings out and is compartmentalizing with alcohol inside. And let's just think about the bars I destroyed, the cars I totaled, the three DUIs I got. I mean, the men that I tore apart, the sex I had, you know, I mean, just like drinking unleashed me, right? Like, Did it unleashed. help let the rage out? Oh, I, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because I was just sitting here wondering what... Two questions I want to ask. How did, give me an, an arc of how rage was expressed from as early as you can remember um, until the present day. And the other thing I wanted to know was what were the triggers for you after the event? Obviously, mm. car horns. Car horns. Ugh. But what were some other ones? Um, or are still to this day? Um, you know, I think the rage... Um, 
I think for most of my life, I raged internally, right? Because self-hatred. Yeah. Like I'm like, I should be better. I should have saved my mother. I should have saved my father. What's wrong with me? La, 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 you know? Um, so I really positioned it to myself. And, and what I, what I teach people now is, you know, there's two types of people, people who blame others or people who blame themselves. And in actuality, if you blame yourself, you're actually ahead of the game because you can actually have more power over that, right? Like if you blame yourself, you can actually do something about it. Mm -hmm. If you blame somebody else, you really can stay victimized for a long time because it's not your fault. And then that proceeds to impact all areas of your life. So I always say, you know, people that come to study with me, right? I always go, okay, one good thing is you blame yourself, (laughs) like, right? Mm -hmm. But but you blame yourself because you're overly responsible, right? You overly want to be responsible. You overly want to take charge. You overly want to be okay. So, you know, yes, it messes up your mind and it messes up the way you live your life. But in actuality, I'd much rather blame myself than blame somebody else. Yeah. Because at least I'm, at least I can change that, right? So, so I think my rage, my, my, oh, so I'll give you a quick example of, of how poor guys, every man I ever dated, please forgive me. Um, I would, oh God, I would tell guys that I was dating, I'd be like, ugh. I'd be like, you're my mother, you're my father, you're my sister, you're my brother, you're my boyfriend, you're my love, you're my everything. And I actually thought that was a compliment. <laughs> I actually, I, see, I actually I can see, thought, yeah. I can see how, how somebody in that moment, because you needed to oh, think that that was a good thing. Oh, I, I, absolutely. I used to send guys, okay, get this. When I would go on, when I was, when I would go on a date with you, this is my 20s, my early 20s. When I go on a date with you, I'd send you a damn thank you card. Oh, my God. Now, mind you, I also knew back then, you know, I was a little hottie, so I could get any guy in the room. Like I could, like I would pick the guy I wanted that night, right? Like I was one of those women, right? Yeah. I would be like, you know, I'd be proud that I was a bitch and I'd be like, ah, you know, I could have any man I want. And I'd go and go to the bar and I'd pick up any guy I wanted, right? But then, you know, I would push him away. And then if he came back, I'd make him grovel. And then, of course, then I be- needed him. And then, right? Did Were you attracted to guys that... uh would fawn over you or the opposite guys that were indifferent or I was really lucky I mean I have to say God that is one way God protected me most of the men and I I have been in emotionally abusive relationships uh, which we can later on in my life but um, I think for most of my life I had men who really tried to love me Mm. you know I mean I think they saw they were like you know savers right they're the saver guys right thank god they're saver guys my husband my ex-husband was a saver guy like he saw me I was a wounded bird I was 29 years old just got sober a year ago save her right I needed saving on some level right um so so yeah but I didn't so I had I think men helped to a certain extent heal me to a certain extent be like okay i'm okay um but of course and that of course later on twists twists it and it all messes it all up right because and if that's not going right then then i'm not worth anything yeah i'm I'm screwed i'm screwed right right my whole i was never single a day in my life um i remember like when i was 20 i think before i met my husband uh, my ex-husband. I have to call my ex-husband because I'm not married anymore. I have to remember that. Um, it's been I've been married, divorced like forever, but I still only have had one husband. So, um, uh, I got married when I was 30, and so I think when I was like 27, 28, I was like single for three months, and that's the longest I'd ever been single since I was 12. 
right? I always had like a little boyfriend. Like I thought I was the greatest girlfriend in the world. Oh my God. I thought I was the greatest girlfriend in the so world. So it sounds like you couldn't come out and state your needs. You had to kind oh God, of no. manipulate no, no. Yeah. and dance around the subject. Oh yeah. oh yeah. I didn't know my needs until, gosh, 25 years ago. I didn't even know what needs were. Um, be needy, have needs, be needy. What are you crazy? That's not. Then you're open. That's a form of vulnerability. And then you're open to criticism, rejection, not getting what you want. Oh no. It just oh, makes yeah. up a whole mess, like a whole mess, right? So, um, so, so, you know, going back to where we kind of started this part of the conversation was, can you get through it? Yes, you can totally get through it. And I, and I think what got me through it. And did we, did we talk about the triggers? Oh, did no, we, we did okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. And remember yeah, where we were, what got you through it. We'll come back to that. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. okay. Okay, so triggers, like some of the triggers were definitely car horn. Definitely any rejection by a man or anything like that. Um, I think it was so subtle, though. I mean, um, you know, I didn't even know that I had post-traumatic stress disorder, right, until I was much older, way past, you know. First of all, it wasn't even named that back then. Um, Back then, there wasn't victims of violent crimes. Like, there was no money for me and my sisters, right? Um, There was just Social Security, and my father cashed in all of his insurance policies. We had no money. You know, we... I babysat and then got a job when I was 14 waitressing. My little sister, Linda, 13, babysat. My sister was 17. She she was a grocery store clerk. And then we got a little Social Security, and that's how we paid the bills and kept living, right? Um, So triggers were, I think, so subtle for me. It's just, I think, any form of rejection, you know, any form. Let's put it this way. I, to this day... Not to the heightened that I am, that, that I used to be, but if we're in a restaurant, and this was most of my life, if we're in a restaurant and a couple starts arguing behind us, I will look at you and say, we're moving tables now. Because I don't know that guy doesn't have a gun and he's going to pull it out and shoot her and hit me in the back. So if there's an argument near me, I'm highly aware of it. So I, I have... Does I, your uh, adrenaline begin firing and your heart racing? Um, um, I've, I've learned to, you know, stay centered inside that, right? Like I don't, you know, have to take quick action. I'm just, you know, I just get really super calm and I am highly aware of what's happening and I assess the situation and I go check it out and, um, and I will move if I have to. If I feel weird energy, I will move. Um, if I'm in an elevator, you know, if the typical, if I'm in an elevator story, right, I will leave. Like I don't, Play with that stuff. What do you mean if you're in, in like, an elevator? You know, you know how the old story is like, if, if, if you have your intuition says, get out of the elevator, oh, right? Okay. Get out of the elevator, right? Okay. But we all are trained to be nice, right? Like, be right. nice. You don't want to make the man feel uncomfortable because you're getting out of the elevator. No, I have learned through the course of my last, you know, 40 years of healing this is that I follow my intuition 100%. Like, if I have a weird feeling, I leave. If I If something's going on and I don't feel comfortable... Uh, I I won't bolt per se, but I will assess the situation and see like, am I safe? Am I comfortable? Like I will go through the steps of um, uh, physical trauma and then emotional trauma and really check myself out and check the environment out to see if I'm okay. And then it took me years to understand needs. So, you know, a guy pressuring me, a guy not doing what I wanted, um, a guy, I mean, I think that my, my hair trigger was like, if you 
and I weren't the same, then I wasn't safe. Because if you wanted to do something that I didn't want to do, or you wanted me to do something that I didn't want to do, then I wasn't safe. Like something bad was going to happen. So I always had a... Because your dad was so different yeah, from you. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's like I, I just had this super antenna like something bad's going to happen. Right. Um, so I, I look back on my relationships with men and um, I broke up with a lot of great men because I didn't feel like they really got me or understood me. But I think to myself, how they, they, they couldn't have, like, there's no possible right. way, yeah, right? No, no human no, being no, exists. Exactly, could, exactly. Yeah. But, but it didn't matter. It's like I wanted to be accepted and loved so desperately for all of me. But, of course, I didn't show all of me because that was screwed up, right? So, so I think that I was just highly attuned to rejection, highly attuned to you don't want to go to the same restaurant I do and then something bad's going to happen because you don't want to go to the same restaurant I do, you know? Mm. And, um, how, and how about like, it, I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, go ahead. Um, external, uh, not necessarily interpersonal uh, interactions as triggers, oh, but how people, about somebody yeah. getting something from the trunk of a car? Would oh, yeah. I mean... Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm one of those girls that still to this day looks under the car when she goes to the parking lot. You know, yeah. like I'm, I, I don't hike by myself. Because this is what I know to be true. That happened to me. Anything can happen to me. So I think a lot of people go through life and like, oh, that won't happen to me. I go, uh, yeah, it could happen to me. I could be raped in the park. You know, I could be attacked in the car. Those things could happen to me. That happened to me. My father killed my mother in front of me. Anything can happen to me. So I am, um, you know, I'm awake to it, right? You know, if I go hiking in the Fryman Canyon, right off Laurel Canyon, right? I go with a friend. I don't go by myself. Um, if, you know, so. So the question becomes then, how do we try to protect ourselves, but not make ourselves an antisocial hermit? Yeah. And that seems like for an alcoholic who <laughs> tends to have black and white thinking. Yes. Like a, a really difficult uh nuanced area to to navigate because somebody trying to stay sober needs human connection yes, yes. And, and and as you were sharing that i was thinking that's why we blame ourselves when we go oh, yeah. through something that yeah. is so traumatic that we had no control over because it's the only way to control it <laughs> yes it's easier to think i fucked up than yes. this is what the world can be oh, on a given because then you're screwed Right. Right. Then you're screwed. Right. So you said something a minute ago and I want to go back to it, but I just lost my train of thought. So um, uh, triggers, hiking, yeah, yeah, black the, and the white nuance. thinking. Yeah. yeah. The black How and white thinking. Yeah. I think one of the things that I this is what I focus on. Uh, this is what I've learned to do. And, you know, it didn't it didn't happen overnight. But I basically I mean, I've done a lot of I've done a lot of work on myself and I and I basically decided that I was going to go for it. Like I was going to go for my healing. Like I, af well, after my third suicide attempt. I like how we just brush over that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to come back there, but it comes back to my third suicide attempt because, you know, when I was um, 20 years old, I tried to kill myself. Um, the first kind of boy broke up with me that he had just proposed marriage to, and he's now telling me he doesn't love me and he wants to break up. And, 
I actually think that moment when he broke up with me was when I really started mourning my parents. And from 14 to 20, I think I had it under control, right? But when he was like, I want to marry you, I love you so much, you know, and we're like looking for rings. And then whatever, a month later, he's like, I don't love you anymore. And it's public, like we're at a party. He didn't say it publicly, but we were like at a party. And then it's like, we're going back to this party. And um, that night, I blacked out as usual, and basically destroyed a bar. I followed him, destroyed the bar. Um, went back to my apartment. Uh, his his roommate drove me back to my apartment, locked me in my apartment. Not a good idea, by the way. And then I proceeded to pack this bag filled with baking soda and cookie crumbs and Band-Aids and called suicide hotline, called my friends. Well, I'm going to kill myself. Ah, you know, called him. Back then there was no cell phones. And he why took, the baking soda? What's, I don't what's, know. I mean, like yeah. literally I was like, just putting, th- putting yeah. shit in a bag, right? Okay. Like I was just putting shit in a bag. And um, I called his uh, apartment and he took it off the hook. And so I called and broke through the line and the operator's like, you know, oh, he, there's nothing on the line. And I am like beside myself. I have no cars. I'm locked in my apartment. I am losing my mind, right? And so I call suicide hotline and I'm like, I'm going to kill myself, you know? And the woman says something, whatever. She's doing the best she can. God bless her. But basically I said, I'm going to kill myself now because you said that. And I hung up the phone. And I proceeded to... You said that to her. I said yes. that to her. Yeah. Then I called my friend Woody and I was like, I'm going to kill myself. And Woody's like, Woody's like, don't kill yourself. And I said, it's too late. Well, I actually hadn't taken any pills yet. Okay. So Woody's like, I'm coming over. And this is why I tried to kill myself the first time, right? Because I told Woody I'd done it, and I hadn't yet. I couldn't have him come to my house and find out I'm a liar. <laughs> you are such a perfectionist. <laughs> so, so I, Paul, find anything in my cupboard. Advil, Pepto-Bismol, oh Tylenol, whatever. I took anything I could take. Proceeded to then pass out, proceeded, he arrived with the police and tore down my door, right, and, you know, the fire police, and brought me to the hospital and had my stomach pumped, right? So I do this three times, right, over the course of five years. And you, but you just <laughs> literally described you would rather die yes, than, than be, be embarrassed. Liar. Be a liar. I don't want to be a liar, Paul. Yeah, don't want to be embarrassed and a liar, Right. We'd rather right. die. That's right. Than be embarrassed. That's right. Yes. That's right. That's right. And I think about that now, like, right, okay, you did try to kill yourself only because you told him you did, even though he'd be way happier if he came to your house to find you alive, right? Yeah. But I'm like, no way. I'm not gonna be a liar. Damn, he's coming over. I better go get some pills, right? <laughs> it's true, it's true. Yes. It's true. And so I do that at twenty, and then I do it again at twenty three, I think, and then I do the last time at twenty five and um, when I did the one at 25, now each time, um, was about, a, you know, boy instigated it, i.e., you know, my trigger and, um, they didn't come and save me. They literally, my third suicide attempt, my boyfriend, came, I wasn't living with him, but I was at his apartment and he had left and I was like, fuck you, you know, and I go through his cupboards and I take every pill I can and I'm like, you'll find me dead, you know. Um, And he happens to come back into the house because he forgot something. 
And I didn't plan on that. I planned on being dead by the time he got home. And so he sees what I'm doing. He sees what I just did. And he literally takes me over his shoulder, puts me in his car, brings me to the emergency room. But he leaves me there. He doesn't come in. He leaves me in the emergency room. And my sister flies down. My older sister, Cindy, flies down. And now up until this point, she's, you know, I'm the effed up one, Paul. You know, I'm the one that's drinking and alcoholic. I'm the one, you know, blacking out. I'm the one having sex. I'm the one, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm the one, right? Mm-hmm. And mind you, I was an actress at the time, you know, actually getting parts. Right, again, two people, two separate people. One person you meet, like, awesome, I'm great. Um, but it was a third suicide attempt. My sister's, um, I get it put in a psychiatric ward to, val- to evaluate me because that's what they do after three suicide attempts. And um, I'm in this little tiny lockdown facility, and it's not even a twin bed. It's like a cot, right? And they have a straight jacket and a cot. And my sister Cindy comes to, to see me. And um, she looks at me in the eyes. And I can see in her eyes that she has given up on me. Because she was like the, the person that hadn't given up on me. And she's looking at me like, maybe this is just the way it is. And when I got out of that psychiatric ward and they deemed me sane and I went back to my studio apartment that I lived alone, oh, by the way, not a good idea. I said to myself, nobody's coming to save me. Nobody's coming. Nobody's coming. I have tried workshops. I have read books. I have gone to therapy. I have done all this shit. And even though I have all these supposed tools and I learn all this crap, I still feel shitty about myself every day of the week right and i said to myself there has got to be a better way and so i started making shit up and about this same time just a few i would say maybe maybe a year later year and a half maybe two years later is when i got sober what do you mean started making shit up i started making up my own exercises to try to figure out how to heal myself because you know i'd read a book and it was awesome right like oh i don't love yourself love yourself and i always what my joke now is like love yourself if you don't know how to love yourself telling me to love myself is not a solution quit telling me yeah telling somebody forgive forgive them yeah screw you it's a byproduct of an experience yeah it's not the experience yeah You you can't tell me to forgive you, now, forgiveness is needed and necessary, and it took me years to forgive my parents. And I did it in stages and blah, 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 and totally we can talk about that. But, uh, but I had to, forgiving my, that's the 20th anniversary of their death, which we can get to, but um, forgiving my father was actually the easiest. Forgiving my mother was the next hardest, and forgiving myself was the last thing That's I the did. hardest that's, one. Yeah. That is the hardest one. So when I realized that nobody was really coming to save me from that psychiatric ward like my sister when i saw her eyes like literally dim like literally not be like no you're fine you'll be okay oh (laughs) like she i really felt in that moment that she gave up 
I, I knew that I had to figure something out because, again, I would read these books and they would make me feel good while I was reading it, but they never told me how to do anything. And it's why I'm so fanatical now about the how. Like, I could give a shit. Do not tell me how to love myself. Or don't tell me to love myself. Tell me how to love myself. You know, don't tell me to get sober. Tell me how to get sober. Don't tell me I should be more emotionally evolved or more emotionally intelligent. Tell me how to be a better person, right? And and wouldn't you agree that most of those endeavors, the first step is to let the fuck go? of everything yeah. that you think yeah. you yeah. need to be doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't get me. I, I mean, if you would have known me at that time, I was doing a lot of things, quote unquote, from the outside right, right? I I was very diligent in my acting career back then. I mean, I was working 40, 60 hours a week on my career, waitressing, you know. And yes, I was drinking every night and getting drunk and blacking out. But, you know, I still was working and doing everything, right? I mean, when my friend told me he thought I had an alcohol problem, I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I mean... I couldn't believe that he was telling me that that I was an alcoholic. I mean, I I couldn't even fathom that he was telling me this. Um, Now I obviously know I was and am, but, um, you know, I just was trying to make do. I mean, I was just trying to make do, right? I think the big three events in my life that really made me go to the next level of evolution or enlightenment or wake up or get my shit together, however you want to describe it, those are all the same things, is one, getting sober, uh, to my third suicide attempt. And then... Um, and you needed a support group to to get sober. Yeah. Um, I did this little experiment on myself for 30 days to prove to everyone that I knew that I was not an alcoholic. And I said to myself, I'm only going to have one drink a day, and that will prove to you that I don't have a drinking problem. How'd that work? Um, well, I could drink one drink a day. That was yeah. not the problem. It What the problem became very clearly is when I was going to have that drink because <laughs> I, I had to have maximize effect. So if I had it at lunch, I couldn't have it at happy hour. If I had it at happy hour, I couldn't have a dinner. If I had a dinner, I couldn't have it after dinner. If I had it after dinner, I couldn't have it before I went to bed, right? So my entire day for 30 days was obsessed with that one drink. And that's what made me realize I was an alcoholic. And that's when I quit drinking. Um, so I've had the good fortune uh, after the first two years to really be a um, to really be on the other side of my alcohol uh, be on the other side of my alcoholism. It doesn't mean that I'm not wary of it because I am. I'm conscious and awake to it. Um, let's just say, like I had, like I had a non-alcoholic something a few years ago, and like I downed the bottle, and I'm like, oh. Look at you. You're if it's non-alcoholic and you're downing the bottle like it's a bottle of wine. That's right. you know that you'd probably still have an alcohol problem if you start drinking again. Right. You know. Right. <laughs> yeah, drinking is not in my future. <laughs> so what was it that replaced the emptiness of untreated alcoholism? Was it spirituality? Is it was it- definitely spirituality. I definitely came back to God. Um And give us the nuts and bolts of what that looked like on a day-to-day basis. Well, me and God had to have it out because, remember, I'd put him on the other side. And so for a long time, I couldn't even say the word God. I would say spirit, universe, source, anything but the word God. I have trouble saying the word, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, like, uh, God, 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 God. Like, it was like, ah. Uh, so whenever I'd hear somebody say God, I'd be like, source, energy, universe. Um, and uh, I was going, at the time, I was going to Agape. I was going to Course in Miracles. Uh, listening to Marianne Williamson, who I listened to fever- feverishly for two years and listened to, you know, 150 of her tapes every day. And, um, of course, the Miracles is one of my staples. And 
um, you know, she says the word God, but but I didn't like I was like, I was good, like source universe. Okay. But then when she quit lecturing, because return to love came out, I went to agape uh, spiritual center here with Reverend Michael Beckwith. And he's Mr. God this and God that and God this and God that. And it took me I mean, I was like, universe source, right? And um, I wanted to take classes. So I started taking classes. But again, I just kept changing the name, right? Like, because I, 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 I wanted that I love the feeling, like I want that feeling again, but I just didn't want to have the God thing. So it was the second year of school, second year I was taking classes in a row, and um, it was in second class, not second year, second class, uh, like four or five month class, and I'm coming home from Agape, and um, I always say God's a nag, and God was like nagging me, Rhonda, Rhonda. There's a like, thought popping like just, into like your just head. Like just God, God, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. And I'm like, oh my God, would you just leave me alone? And so it's pouring rain on the 405, and I pull over on Maholland, and I park in front of that big giant church up there, go in the parking lot, and I am having it out with God, and I mean, I am having it out because in every cell of my being, Paul, if I believed in God again, and if I said the word God again, my entire family would be dead. Because that is the cost for believing again. Again, I, somebody like for years I had, I couldn't drive. I mean, I would drive at night, but I would think that somebody was going to kill me. Like I had to, you know, I had nightmares every night. 14 years, my father chased me every night in my dreams, right? So the thought of saying the word God again, literally cellularly, talking about triggers, cellularly was like somebody is going to die. Like literally, because that's what you had said yes, in your yes, mother's bedroom yes, when like, you begged him yes, to save her life. Yes. So somebody's going to die if I believe in you again. So I remember being in that car for I don't know hours, crying, screaming at God, please, please, please leave me alone. And I remember finally getting to the point where I said to God, "Okay, I'm ready to believe in you again, even if it means everybody dies." And this isn't just an intellectual exercise, Paul. I actually had to be okay if everybody died because I really, really was afraid that would happen. I mean, I had nightmares every night for 14 years. So I remember driving away from that experience and just sobbing and just, you know, again, I had it out with God. And, and some people say I had it out with the devil, but I really had it out with God. And um, but you dropped the weight of keeping the world safe. Yeah, yeah. And I and I just got done going through a dark night a, a few years ago. And one of the things that I, you know, have said is like I'm not going to stay alive for my family anymore. Like I'm not going to do things to keep my family alive anymore. I, you know, I'm not responsible for everybody staying alive. Because that's really what I felt for most mm-hmm. of my life is that I was personally responsible for keeping you alive. Anybody, <laughs> anybody in the restaurant alive that I was with, like it was, it was like I'm in charge of making sure you're okay. Wow, that's you know it's it's why I get on my soapbox here and say please go to a support group, please go to therapy because oh, yeah. it is so rare the person that can get to that clarity on their own you know you you need support you need you know whether it's a therapist whether it's a support group whether it's coaching whether it's you know uh, an intense workshop but you also have to devote yourself it's not just one time i mean i devoted you know one of the things that i did just real quickly is uh 
you know, when people go like, how did you do it, Ron? I go, okay, well, I'll give you an example of my fortitude during this time, my, my, my commitment, is um, I got on my belly on the middle of my, you know, living room floor with my cassette player. Oh, by the way, for everyone who doesn't know what cassette players are, look it up. And I would get on my floor with my cassette player with my cassette, put the cassette in, and I would have all my favorite books around me with all my favorite sayings and all my favorite prayers and all the things that I love to read. And I would make a, a, a voice recording of my voice with saying you, you know, me, 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 me on it, right? I am the blah, blah, blah. I am the da, 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 da. Rhonda, you can blah, 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 right? And I would make those tapes and they'd be two hours long. For two years, Paul, all I did for two years, I didn't listen to the radio. I didn't listen to music. I listened to my own voice on those cassette tapes over and over again. Whenever I drove, I had one at my house. I would carry it with me everywhere I went because I literally had to reprogram my brain. So you can't take one workshop or read one book and say, oh, it didn't work. No, no. You must say your life is worth fighting for. You are worth fighting for. And you must decide to be worth fighting for. If you're waiting for some magical moment for you to be worthy of it, it may never come. So you actually have to decide that if you are still alive today, because that's the thing, when I tried to kill myself three times, I was like, I'm still alive. Like, what the heck? Like, I should be dead, right? So I'm still alive. Uh, I better, because I was like, I was trying to die. If I'm not dying, I I said to myself, I have to figure out how to live because I'm not dying. So if you're not dying, you are living. And you have to decide that you are worth the fight to save yourself. You have to become your greatest advocate. You have to be your own best friend. You're right next to you every day anyway. You're, you're, you're in your why, own head. You're love you? yourself. Why, love yourself. Why wouldn't you? And also another huge thing I believe is getting away from people who diminish your worth. Oh, God, yes. Because they just feed your self-defeating That's right. beliefs. That's right. And start letting people who want to love you love you. People who have nothing to gain by loving you especially. Well, I think I look back on my, I look back on my family. Like if I look back at all my relatives, all my cousins, my sisters and I are probably the healthiest ones of the bunch because we got out of there. Even though we had that horrible history, we got out of there. Right. So it's like, yeah, you, you have to choose yourself. And, and for many years I didn't, I didn't change my life because I was worried about my friends, right? Worried about my sisters, worried about somebody else. But eventually it came to the point where if I don't save myself, I can't save anybody else. Like you really do have to put the mask on first. So you have to decide. It really is a decision. And I promise you, promise you, promise you, promise you, promise you, promise you, promise you that if you decide to choose you and choose to practice that self-love and practice being fearless and practice doing the things that Paul and I are talking about, it will get better and it'll be better than you ever can imagine. And I know that to be true. I, I, I know that to be true uh, as well. And it's, it's, uh, yeah, our crystal balls are broken. Yes, except that's right. that. That's right. Yes. <laughs> yes, but it that. does get better. Yeah. I know that to be true. It's way yeah. better on this side. It's way better over here. That's all I got to say. It's way yeah. better over here than how I lived my life for 20 years. Uh, you have a book that uh, I would like to uh, plug to the to the listeners, and it's called Fearless Living, and it's life without excuses and love without regret. And um, I, I think people should get it and they should read it and they'll 
hear more about it. And you give workshops and other stuff. They can go to your website. What's yeah, your website? You know what? If you want to go to fearlessliving.org forward slash risk, R-I-S-K, fearlessliving.org forward slash risk, R-I-S-K, there's a page there. And if you put your name and email in, I'll give you a free course called Stretch, Risk, or Die, and it's going to help you on your path. Just to get the first little start. Will, I will um, put these all these links Fabulous. to your book, to that on the website. Great. Um, Rhonda, thank you so, so much. I appreciate it. Ah, it's such a blessing. Thank you for having me. Many, many thanks to uh, to Rhonda. Uh, that episode will soon be uh, transcribed and posted uh, by Accurate Secretarial. Many thanks to them for donating their time and uh, helping out the show. Uh, Rhonda's book, by the way, I didn't have a chance to look at it until after the interview. And, you know, how she she talked about how... Uh, she was always looking for stuff that tells you how do you, you know, learn how to love yourself better, stuff like that. Her book is really a workbook with exercises on how to um, uh, emotionally uh, heal and grow. So definitely check that out. I'll put links to that on the uh, on the website. Um, support for today's show comes from Audible, presenting Where Should We Begin with Esther Perel. This original audio series takes you inside the office of the foremost authority on modern love, Esther Perel, the celebrated psychologist who has helmed a private practice in New York City since 1983. Esther has over three decades of experience navigating the intricacies of love and desire. Listen as she helps 10 anonymous couples sort through the intimate and profound details of their stories together. And... You might find the language you've been looking for to have conversations with the people in your own life. Real couples, candid conversations, and surprising truths. You won't want to miss it. Just go to audible.com slash estere to listen. That's audible.com slash E-S-T-H-E-R. Audible and Amazon Prime members listen free. So, where should we begin? want to also give uh, give some love to our uh, sponsor, who has been very, very consistent and helpful with the uh, program, ZipRecruiter. Uh, i got a question for you. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Finding great talent can be tough. Thankfully, with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then, their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by business of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, you guys can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash first. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash first. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash first. All right. Uh, I had mentioned earlier uh, in the podcast about if you wanted to see that video uh, tribute I put together of Herbert, uh, that uh, it's available for people who are monthly donors uh, through Patreon. Uh, there's a couple of different ways to support the podcast uh, financially. 
Um, you can support us with a one-time don- donation through PayPal. Uh, you can also support us with a monthly donation through PayPal, but um, th- the interface on PayPal doesn't allow me to give you guys uh, little free stuff like I can with Patreon. So, um, yeah, uh, if you want to become a monthly donor, do it through do it through Patreon. Um, you can also help the show out uh, by using our Amazon uh, portal. If you're going to buy something at Amazon, click on that little logo, Amazon logo on our homepage, and then they'll give us some money if you buy something. And that definitely helps us because we always need more uh, money here. Um, you can also help us by uh, spreading the word through social media about the podcast uh, or giving us a good rating at iTunes. We could use uh, some more uh, ratings. You guys give us great ratings when you do do it, but we really need more people to go to iTunes and uh, and rate it because then that boosts our ranking. And we haven't been on the main page on iTunes in a little while. So it would be nice because that brings more people to the show. Uh, what I'm asking is help me out here. Help me out. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, Mount Sinai Coffee. And she writes, I was recently hospitalized for depression and suicidal ideation. One evening, I saw sitting in the common area uh, on the unit. Um, one evening, I s- oh, I think she meant I was, was sitting in the common area on the unit. I was tearful due to feeling extremely low and unsafe. A fellow patient who was in the throes of mania and who I knew from a previous admission approached me. He looked deeply into my eyes and told me that I needed to stay alive and that he would give both his left and right testicles to do so. It was both unsettling and hilarious and distracted me from my dark thoughts for a little while. In an odd way, it did keep me alive. Thank you for that. This is an email that I got from a listener named Bree, and um, you know I I always um, try to mention the Rape and Incest National Network when I read the survey of somebody who has experienced sexual trauma and doesn't know where to begin to to try to get uh, get help, and so Bree wrote in and said, I finally listened to your voice in my ear, picked up my phone, and scared and skeptical called RAIN. That's Rape and Incest National Network. And by the way, their website is rainn.org. The voice that answered was kind and understanding and helped me to set up an appointment with a counselor. Still scared and skeptical, I attended my first therapy session. We were discussing codependency and setting boundaries at my meeting on Tuesday, And here you are on Friday with an episode on exactly that. I enjoyed the episode, but my mind is still begging for more. My husband and I are both middle children, people pleasers, non-confrontational, etc. And then she asked the question, um, how do I protect my own boundaries while making my husband feel safe to have some of his own when he is trying to only care about mine? I'm in therapy and he isn't. So I feel like it's on me to start this new way of being, and I'm trying, but it feels like a lot of pressure on me to figure this all out. I've realized from listening to the show that my codependence originated pretty early in my life, so I feel like it runs deep. 
I'm brand spanking new to setting boundaries, and the show made me realize some things I was doing wrong, uh, and then parentheses, putting the boundary in their hands, not holding my ground when people don't respect my boundaries, etc. And I wrote her back and said, um, you don't worry about making your husband feel anything. You let him be in charge of feeling his own feelings and learning how to express them. You can let him know your feelings. This is probably where you'll be triggered into wanting to protect him emotionally. That is where most of the work is done, sitting in that discomfort. When we grow, the world doesn't automatically grow with us, so connections get stretched and it can get really uncomfortable. That is growth. That doesn't mean it isn't working. Uh, the, uh, the, the new discomfort when you use a tool means that it is working. You're working new emotional muscles. Uh, one person becoming less codependent will not, quote, fix both people. Uh, it might even make things more uncomfortable because you'll be upsetting the balance that two struggling people without tools have settled into by default. And this is where so much of the work is because you'll be highly aware as you stop trying to fix other people of how often you want to control in an attempt to feel safe or loved, etc. Codependence is a false way of creating safety because things are being negotiated out of fear instead of independence, mutual respect, and trust that the other person will not die if we let them find their own path, painful as it may be to watch. In codependence, we ignore that in codependence, we ignore what we're really feeling and needing because we're afraid it's selfish or needy or we'll be shamed or rejected or we haven't even really found what we like yet. But when we learn independence through boundaries, we're doing it through what we want because it's healthy for us and we're taking into consideration the other person as well but not making their emotional fragility or perceived fragility the primary factor in the choices we make. If your husband truly has a codependence problem, he will probably need to seek his own help. He might learn some tools from watching you adopt new ones like boundaries and expressing feelings unapologetically but with diplomacy and compassion, but those alone won't help him heal any trauma or abandonment stuff. In other words, you can't go to the gym for him. You know, He can see how doing push-ups helps you and try some of his own, but his body also needs its own trainer to show him the best exercises. End of analogy. So thank you for that question, uh, Bree. And um, I love when somebody asks a a question that uh, allows me to share any kind of experience that I have had to, (laughs) any kind of insight that I have had to glean from fucking up so badly on my own. You know, any experience that I share here, trust me, has not come to me naturally. It has come by process of elimination of doing every wrong thing that uh, that I possibly could. Uh, this is an awful moment filled out by a woman who <laughs> calls herself, I'm not codependent, you are. And she writes, standing outside of a church, wondering if I will have the courage to go into my first ever CODA meeting, that's Codependence Anonymous, then turning around and going home because I'm afraid of being judged or how I will feel walking past the 12-step meeting here sign. It's awful because I know exactly how ridiculous I'm being 
and because I know that one day I will make it through the door, just not today. I love that on so many levels. I love that it's a great example of making a baby step, you know, to just go to the parking lot the first time, you know, and then maybe just get out of your car the second time. And that's, for me, a lot of times when something is overwhelming is just breaking it down into the tiniest baby steps possible makes it makes it doable. Um, this is also an awfulsome moment filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself Mental uh, POS, which I assume stands for um, piece of shit. Uh, and she writes, the story of how I acquired my favorite pair of jeans. I was at work and under a tremendous amount of pressure. I found myself locked in the bathroom stall with a disposable scalpel in my hand, unable to catch my breath. I go through phases where I struggle with self-injury. I had never, ever cut myself at work, but things had just been spiraling out of control, and there I was in the filthy bathroom, losing my mental shit. The damage was too deep, and I couldn't stop the bleeding from a cut on my thigh, which resulted in blood pushing through my pant legs. Fuck. I tried covering the red with black marker. That was stupid. I managed to hide the stain with my purse, hanging it in front of me, and slid into a meeting. Afterwards, I ran out the door as I had a therapy appointment a half hour later. I stopped at a department store, sick to my stomach, thinking I would never find a pair of pants that quickly that fit me properly. I just grabbed the first few styles of my size and checked out. In a car, in the car, I wiggled into a new pair of jeans. These jeans fit me better than any article of clothing I had ever purchased. I told my therapist what happened and why I was a few minutes late. She brushed it off. Parentheses, we never talk about my self-injury. Um, I'm not sure, by the way, why that is, but anyway. I go back, uh, I go back, uh, I go back new jeans. Um... I go back. Oh, I go back to work, and my coworkers begin to shower me uh, with compliments over my jeans. Did you lose weight? No, I got new jeans. I met a new now ex boyfriend the next day wearing these jeans. I got a promotion weeks later while wearing these pants. I plan on wearing them to Vegas one day. I'm not a vain person. Most of the time, I want to melt into the ground so no one sees me. But when I have on these pants and pass in front of a mirror, I have to pause and say, damn, and admire how hot my ass looks in them. Whenever I feel like cutting again, I'll go put on my confidence jeans, and sometimes that urge goes away. Thank you for sharing that. I love... You know, one of the things I love about doing this show is hearing the the variety of ways that people gain insights, heal, become more of the person that they want to be. Um, it just never ceases to amaze me. This is a shame and secrets survey that was filled out by a woman who calls herself Middle Child. She is... Straight, in her 20s, raised in a stable and safe environment. Uh, she writes that she's never been sexually sexually abused. Um, and then she qualifies it. She, she writes, I've never been sexually abused, but I was exposed to sexual content at a young age. Once as a nine-year-old, my sister, 12 at the time, and I snuck down to our basement after bedtime to watch a movie. 
We heard our father coming and thinking he was coming down just to turn off the lights, we quickly turned the TV off and hid under the coffee table since we weren't supposed to be up. He proceeded to watch about two hours of porn, which we could see in full view from our hiding spot. Luckily, we couldn't see him and had no concept of what he might have been doing at the time. It was very difficult to reconcile what I had seen, having almost no concept of sex and still seeing my father as a hero dad. My sister and I agreed never to talk about it again. We've upheld this, and of course, my dad has no idea it happened and would never have allowed it intentionally. I often trace the physical rigidity I have towards men and even people in general to that time and that age. I believe my reaction to this event over time cumulatively led me to shun sexual intimacy and is the reason I didn't lose my virginity until age 24, despite having no moral or religious reason not to, and having a couple of boyfriends who may have been driven away by this. Have you ever been physically or emotionally abused? Not sure. Uh, again, I feel this happened in an unintentional matter. manner. Both my parents had high-powered careers and had very little time for the kids. Um, right there, that, to me, I'm not an expert, that's a form of abuse. That's a form of neglect and abandonment. You know, being able to make, being a high-powered job um, as opposed to a job that allows you to live comfortably, that to me is a decision that that parent makes. They, they're choosing more money over more time with their kids. And I that's just my personal belief. A lot of you may disagree with that. Um, but I think it is an epidemic in this country. Um, we, we so rarely praise people for working for less working less hours and less money so they can spend more time with their kids. And um, anyway, continuing. Um, both my parents had high-powered careers and had very little time for kids. And, and now the, the difference would, would be if your parents were just trying to survive and had to be working that hard. That I wouldn't consider that that way. It would still be a shame that you didn't get to see your parents. But to me, there's a difference when someone chooses to work those hours. Um, when we were a little older, we had a couple of test-run nannies who didn't work out. They may actually have been psychologically abusive to us now that I think about it, but that's another story. And we were told if we were very good, we could be at home alone from about first grade on. That sounds pretty fucked up, uh, by the way. This led me to become very strict about rules since we had the stakes of bringing in an untrustworthy non-parent to our household. There was also a level of abandonment mixed with the chaos of spending three to four hours as children with no adults around. I became the enforcer of rules to the family and was constantly told I was uptight or robotic. I was also jealous of kids whose parents were around after school as they all seemed to have a less stressful environment. Um, and again, I think it's the intent of the parent doesn't really matter. It's the effect, the feelings that are left with the kid. Um, you know, the, the lack of things that are left with the kid, uh, any positive experiences 
with the abusers. It feels wrong to call my parents abusers because they were not actively harming us, but it also feels important to admit that their actions affected me negatively and I can't seem to move past certain hang-ups that feel ingrained in my personality. They've provided so much for me and don't know about certain resentments I feel that only seem to build over time. Your parents should provide for you and no amount of financial gifts can make up for not taking an emotional interest in your child. End of story. Uh, Darkest thoughts. I think I will never be as successful as my parents or my friends, even though I consider myself smarter and more conscientious. That, to me, is the ultimate success, is that you are more conscientious. When somebody is on their deathbed, And if you ask them, do you think it was more important that you made money or that you were a good person? That person would say it was more important that I was a good person. Just my opinion. Um, I feel I've painted... Here's something you will never hear somebody say on their deathbed, I wish I'd made more money. Uh, maybe that's happened. I've never heard of it, but I have heard people's regret that they didn't spend more time with family, that they didn't worry less, um, that they didn't have more fun. I feel I've painted myself into a corner in a career I hate that will still not open the doors others seem to have already breezed through. I often secretly think that everything will turn around when I win the lottery or marry rich. Then my true life will begin. But what I'd actually do then, I have no idea. I also worry I will never be able to connect to anyone emotionally or physically and will never find love or happiness because of how stiff I can be. You know, the fact that you listen to this podcast tells me that you have an interest in becoming more, uh, in, in growing emotionally or healing or doing something that didn't seem to be a priority with your parents. And it makes sense to me that you would feel a conflict because all of the signposts of success that your parents modeled aren't working for you. So I'd suggest you follow your gut and work on the emotional stuff with a therapist, with support groups, with finding friends that you feel safe around, distancing yourself from people who embody what you don't like or who are toxic or can't have deep conversations. Um, and I think that path will, will probably start to open up for you. Um, Darkest Secrets. A doctor also once suggested I see a therapist and ask about an antidepressant because she could tell I was very unhappy. I clammed up and felt extreme embarrassment at the suggestion. I promptly switched doctors and never told anyone. Otherwise, I have nothing. I almost always followed rules and never did anything wrong. This has made me feel boring and worthless and like my life has almost no peaks or valleys. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I sometimes fantasize about sleeping with my first boyfriend who I never slept with while dating because of my hang-ups. I believe this relationship has been my only true experience of romantic love and I have so many regrets about it even seven uh, to eight years later. 
What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I probably should speak to my parents about my issues, but feel this is the last thing I actually want to do, as I will come off as ungrateful and pulling things out of thin air to blame them for my personal problems. It's probably not a good idea, in my opinion, to go to your parents right now, because they don't sound like the type of people that have a lot of emotional intelligence or flexibility, and they just don't see life through the same prism that that you do. And so I think a therapist would be a great person to begin to navigate this. There, There really should be therapists that specialize in the children of workaholics and rich people. Not that all rich people uh, ignore their kids, but that that seems to be a uh, a pretty big epidemic among the upper class. What, if anything, do you wish for to go back in time and unclench a little bit or a lot? Well, it's never too late. Have you shared these things with others? The abandonment issues from being left alone? Yes. It feels conversational and no one ever sees it as, some, as something deep that has impacted my life. Lots of people were latchkey kids and they seem fine. It's weird how two people can experience the, the similar thing, but it affects one person more. Um, and you also, you know, you said they seem fine. You know? Um, there was a part of me that was really envious of uh, Chris Cornell and he was good looking in an amazing voice I've always wished I could sing Um, he didn't have a fat face like I do Uh, he he didn't look like he was aging at all he had amazing hair he wrote great songs. He sang with feeling. And he took his life today or last night. So we never know what's what's going on inside somebody. How do you feel after writing these things down? It feels cathartic but brings back some tensions from childhood and a feeling of helplessness that this all still affects me today. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Try to bring up issues early on so they don't fester. Also, even though you may not have gone through anything terrible, it doesn't mean everything is perfect. Thank you. I'm really, really glad I you filled this out and I got um, to read it on air because the things that kind of fuck us up come in so many different packages and um, it can really, really make getting healthier, uh, more difficult if we over-categorize or rank things in terms of how good or bad this was. This is a happy moment filled out by a non-binary person who calls themselves that one fucker with the weed socks, and they're 16. Uh, A few days ago, I reached a breaking point. I was driving home alone at night when tears started welling up in my eyes. It's been a really rough year, and I felt myself finally giving into this seemingly unwavering episode of depression. 
Not really believing it would help me, I made a sudden turn towards my yoga studio. I cried throughout the class and struggled to hold some of the poses, but I made it through the whole hour. I held every pose and took deep breaths, and even if I didn't believe it, repeated to myself, I am healing, I am healing. At the end of the class, I laid belly up to rest and closed my eyes peacefully. When I opened them, I felt refreshed, new, light, rested. I was also the only one in the studio. I gathered my things in a panic, fearing that I might have been forgotten and locked in. However, when I walked out of the studio, my yoga teacher was waiting for me with a smile on her face. She had kept the studio open 20 minutes late so I could sleep. My heart melted. I couldn't thank her enough as my insomnia had been hitting pretty hard these days. This simple act of kindness has fueled me during the past few days. Just when I was ready, I give up. A person, practically a stranger to me, gave me a boost. Help will always come when we need it most and always in the form we least expect. That was great. So so true. Put the crystal ball away. Uh, this is a really fucked up vacation argument. Um, and the reason I started this survey is I've always found something inherently ridiculous about arguments that happen on vacation. And so, uh, yeah, I have this uh, survey. And this person, uh, Jamie, uh, filled it out. And she writes, uh, That time when I was 12 on our one and only ever family vacation to South Carolina, when my father drove us through the, quote, black part of town in hopes that we would maybe see a prostitute, while my stepmother was screaming, and I do mean screaming, in his face to stop the car and turn around. He remained very calm and said, when in Rome, thankfully, I didn't inherit the racism. That is so fucked up. Thank you for sharing that, Jamie. Um, this is a happy moment filled out by Spicy Psycho, and she writes, Most parents hate when their children talk back or don't listen. However, some of my happiest and proudest moments of motherhood are exhibited when my little child talks back, stands up to me, or flat out says no and crosses her tiny arms in front of her chest. I have to bite my tongue to keep from smiling at her. Of course, I want her to listen and make the right choices and learn to do the right things and be a good person in the universe, but for me, it shows me that she is independent, not scared of me, and feels her own feelings and thoughts and knows her existence in the universe is valid. I love that I am raising her to know and feel these things, especially since I grew up and from the age of 18 months resigned to be completely compliant and codependent with my own mother because catering to her every need was my purpose. It took me 30-some years to feel my own feelings and know that my place, too, is valid. I can't even begin to tell you how much I love that one. This is also a shame and secret survey, and this was filled out by card-carrying codependent. And she's straight in her 30s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened. Uh, Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, and I never reported it. An ex-boyfriend refused to stop during sex, even though I told him I was hurting and needed it to end. I laid there crying while he finished. It took 
at least a year for me to call that rape, but since then I've been able to come to some healing through sharing my experience with good friends. Uh, she's been emotionally abused. I grew up in a loving family, but with a narcissistic father uh, who was addicted to pornography and a codependent mother. It took a long time to realize that I was seeking out romantic partners who would treat me with the same dismissive neglect as my father and who I could offer the same blind acceptance and endless patience as my mother offered my father. In romantic relationships, this codependency has followed me and I have a perpetual difficulty having any meaningful boundaries, any positive experiences with the abusers. The beginning of the relationships uh, was like a high. It was like I had found that dismissive man and won. I had won his love, and this time I had fixed it. And everything would be perfect now. It just never lasts. In my current relationship, we've had this cycle a few times as he relapses in his addiction darkest thoughts. I am so ashamed of this constant battle inside me. I am fully aware that my lack of boundaries in my relationship in the last four years has allowed me to be hurt repeatedly, but I'm still not sure I have the strength to do what needs to be done. I knew my boyfriend struggled with addiction to pornography and sex, but I believed him when he said he would be open with me if he was in danger of relapsing. Four or five relapses that he had to be caught with never told me, and at least one infidelity later also had to be caught, Um, we are having the same argument again. I am trying to set up a therapy appointment for us so that I can't just let it go again, but it's tearing me up physically and emotionally to know that I might be single after I set the boundary that if he chooses to hide his phone and keep secrets, then that is a choice for us to be over. I can know it's the right choice, but there's no peace. My codependent brain tortures me, reminding me that he's had trauma. He had a gross, invasive mom. He gets so anxious. I am being unreasonable and impatient and mean to expect him to do all this. I am barely holding it together, and the worst part is, is that I am a therapist. I can advocate for my clients so fucking hard, but I can't seem to do jack shit for myself. I so get that. I so get that. It is so hard sometimes to take our own advice. Because I think like when we give the advice to another person, it's we're operating intellectually, but intellectual doesn't work for us when it comes to our emotional issues, uh, at least in the beginning. And... Uh, Anyway, Darkest Secret, a former boyfriend who pursued me doggedly for over a year. I finally fell for him and was so excited to have a relationship with a man who seemed so committed to wanting me. That did not last long, however. He quickly let me know he was dating me along with a few other people. He would tell me about the other women he dated and how interesting they were or fun things that they did together. I remember telling him how confusing that was for me, and his reply... He would be exclusive with me if I was willing to prove my loyalty. The only way I could prove my loyalty was if I let him urinate on me and in my mouth and drank his urine. And still, even after that, he had to stop talking to me. I couldn't let go of him on my own. Wow. It's amazing that the 
the imprints of neglect or abuse in childhood have on people. How deeply we will believe what we want to be true, even as there are red flags all over the place. I mean, can you imagine if your client had described that guy to you? And, And you knew that intellectually, that this was red flag city. But, you know, as we like to say in uh, one of my support groups, we see red flags and we and we think it's a parade. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I don't have any. I've gone so long without sex with my boyfriend that the sexual part of me has just gone dormant. When, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish I could tell my parents that I've been raped. But I know she would just tell me that if I had remained a virgin until marriage that I wouldn't have put myself in danger. That is sickening that a parent would tell that to their child. That is, that to me is is worse than rape. Uh, And I know I shouldn't be comparing because I always say don't compare things, but oh, fuck, that is so fucked up. What, if anything, do you wish for? I dream of being a mother, but as I age in an unhealthy relationship, I realize it may never happen. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, I have some wonderful friends that support me. I wonder about, though, getting around a group of people who have had your experience. I think that might be a really, really, oh my God, I'm telling this to a therapist. She fucking knows that. Um, how do you feel after writing these things down. It feels about the same. I know what needs to happen for me to be safe, but the tension is so painful. Anything you'd like to say to someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? This really sucks, but as long as you stay without boundaries, it will continue to suck. Thank you for that. My fear that I may know it all uh, really spiked in, in reading that one. Um... This is a happy moment filled out by Puddle of Stress and Anxiety. And she writes, After a particularly stressful week filled with studying, multiple AP tests, and loads of homework, today, Saturday, I didn't want to do a single thing. I'm a junior in high school, and this year has been one of the most difficult by far. It was raining all day, and after dinner I decided that even though I didn't feel like moving, I'd just go for a walk. It was still lightly raining, and I lived by a river and a park. I took a walk through the park and along the river, just admiring all the green and the beautiful sounds and the fresh smell. Everything was so clean and beautiful. I felt so at peace and happy even. I don't know how long it's been since I felt that, but it was such a nice feeling. After I got cold, I went home and took a hot shower and listened to one of my favorite bands, The Rue Pains. I still feel very calm and happy. And this was one of the nicest feelings I've had in a while. I love the rain, and I'm so thankful I got to experience this today. I love that so much because it's doable. I love when people share moments that help them that are doable. You know, that it's not, I got into Harvard Business School and, you know, or I, you know, whatever. I love, I just love that. 
Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself, doesn't know if pee-pee means piss or penis. <laughs> Dude, I'm a fan of yours right out of the gate. Uh, and his happy moment, sitting on the chair, uh, my heart feeling rock hard from anxiety while my dog is lounging. Then the mail carrier shows up, opening and closing the mailboxes, prompting my dog to get up and look at me for reassurance. I get up and stroke him, and I finally figure out that dealing with anxiety, and after reaching out, I can actually try to deal with it, lets me reach out to others who are struggling. My dog isn't a stupid jerk. He's feeling what he feels, and I get to be with him. When I first got him, he was a bit of a wreck, and although he's still tense, he can actually... You can actually see him trying his best to keep his shit together. Sometimes he manages, other times he doesn't. When he's losing his shit and I feel his tiny heart jackhammering away, I'm so grateful that I can sit with him and work on his anxiety issues with him when he's ready for it. That hit me on a lot of levels because you just described Herbert. He would go crazy. And sometimes I would feel his little heart and it would just, yeah... Herbert was so terrified of strangers, of anybody coming into the house, even people he'd met multiple times. Um, and he'd just bark and bark and bark as he backed up and crouched down and not like aggressive, like he was going to bite them, but just like warning everybody. Um, and this one's... I didn't pick this because of the name. This just happened to be here. Um, and of course, it touched me. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Herbert is my God. Um, God, I miss him so much. I cannot believe that I will never get to see him again. And I think what hurts too is... I had always anticipated that we would know when it was going to happen, that it wouldn't be a surprise. And I didn't get to experience that last kiss on his head. Uh, she writes, I have to apologize for my writing skills at the moment as I'm struggling to get all my thoughts together, but I felt like I had to share this. It's currently 4.30 a.m. and I haven't slept all night, and even though I have to work in a few hours, my sleeping patterns are all over the place as I'm currently in a depressive episode that's gotten pretty bad. I'm trying my best to keep up with my commitments, but a huge part of me feels like it's not worth it, feeling a pretty terrible, feeling pretty terrible about myself and life in general. I stepped out into my little tiny courtyard to have a cigarette. All of the lights were off in other apartment buildings. Most normal people are asleep at this hour, except for one. Suddenly, I hear the song Copacabana blaring from the apartment with its light on. It made me smile for the first time in about a week because it was so completely unexpected and weird. I'm sure other people in my apartment building didn't find it as amusing as me given the hour, but it sure made my day a tiny bit brighter. Thank you, random neighbor. Never underestimate the healing powers of Barry Manilow and his his work in the 70s. 
Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself probably a cabbage. And uh, he writes, Last weekend, I caught a nasty cold that was making the rounds at work. I hadn't been physically sick in a long time, but after an ugly breakup slash divorce in early 2016, I'd been totally destabilized for a long time and slow to recover. My depression and anxiety were as bad as ever. I was isolated and I was eating myself alive with guilt and shame about not getting my life together. I'd been working on stuff for a while, therapy, meds, the works, but things weren't clicking. When I got sick... I decided I was going to do what I usually do when I get sick, give myself a break. Write the weekend off, eat soup, and watch movies. No guilt about not getting enough done, no stress, no shame about canceling plans. Just me, my laptop, some Mucinex, and about a quart of phlegm per hour. And you know, Monday morning, I didn't feel well physically, but mentally, I felt okay. I felt peaceful. I felt stable for the first time in a long time. It took an actual virus to get me to cut myself some slack and accept that I really am recovering and that it's going to be okay. My sinuses and my heart are both still a little raw and runny, but I think the worst is over. Thank you for that. It's... It is so great when we can give ourselves the compassion that we would give to a close friend, and yet we so rarely do it. And one of the things that I am proud of that I've been able to do is not shame myself when I get depressed and have to take a nap, and I look at it like it's the flu. And um, that has helped because I think when we shame ourselves for being depressed, it makes our depression even worse or our anxiety or whatever, whatever it is. Um, I hope you enjoyed uh, our episode. Um, I, you know, those of you who have... Uh, helped out the the podcast financially i wouldn't have been able to go record uh non-americans um without your help and you know when i described that moment when i was in that courtyard in baden baden and tears were streaming down my face you know the other thing i forgot to mention was that i felt so grateful that i was able to go do this trip to record a wider variety of cultures and experiences. And um, I'm, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. Um, and man, that Rhonda's story was just incredible, incredible. And um, if you're out there and you're feeling stuck and you think that nobody understands, no, people understand. Maybe some of the people you've reached out to so far haven't understood, but there are people that understand and can help you and who you will help by asking for help. 
It's a, it's a really beautiful chain of, uh, of help. It's one of the most beautiful things I've experienced in my 106 years on the planet. I can't believe I've never told you guys I'm actually 106. Um, well, I just turned 106, so... Um, Why, why didn't I end this earlier? There, might, there had to have been a better moment to end on than this. I, I'm so glad that I was able to do these riffs with you guys about Herbert and his butthole all these years, and I'm definitely going to miss... Um, it won't be the same now that, that he's... He's gone, but in a way, his butthole lives on, and uh, he would have wanted he would have wanted us to keep talking about his butthole. Now that I think of it, I think it's the only way to truly honor honor Herbert. Ivy completely disagrees. She thinks that we should bury him and move on. She says that that's really the only way for pure closure. Uh, anyway, don't ever forget, you are not alone in what it is that you're feeling. While your circumstances might be unique, what you're feeling there are people all around you it's just a matter of reaching out and asking for help. And I'm glad that I did, because then I get to do this show and travel and meet listeners from different countries and I have a beautiful life, but my dog is dead. Good night. <laughs> Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.